I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. (music) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. This is part one of Clear Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. Now, this is a play that almost everyone was forced to read in high school, and as a result, they probably now hate. But the goal of this podcast is to step back from that as much as we can, to dig ourselves into the minutia of the words, and to come back at the play as freshly as we can. Please go ahead and listen to the introduction to this Clear Shakespeare series if you haven't already. It lays out the whole project for you. The short version, though, is that we're trying to make Shakespeare's plays immediate and dramatic and personal again, after centuries of cultural ubiquity and fame have made that really difficult to pull off. And in order to do that, we need to get back to the moment-to-moment language. I'm going to focus mainly on what's being said, what the words mean, why he chose those specific words, and how it's being said, which means his writerly techniques, the sound of the words. What and how are really the building blocks of all language, but especially poetic language. The great Ezra Pound once said, Poetry is a centaur. The thinking, word-arranging, clarifying faculty must move and leap with the energizing, sentient, musical faculties. Kind of a Nazi, that guy, but he totally nailed that thing about poetry. The two halves of this centaur, the thinky part and the feely part, are inseparably joined. So to talk about one without the other just makes no sense to me. Now, I'm occasionally going to suggest my opinion on the why. In other words, why characters are choosing to say what they're saying, when they're saying it at that moment. But once you know the what and how, I hope you'll take on the why yourself. Because the goal here is to find a personal meaning, just like you would for most books you read and plays you act in and see. And I can't do that for you because I'm not you. If you're acting in this play, these have to be the words you would say in the way you would say them. They have to become totally yours instead of that flat, generic way I usually see them performed. The why is the work that readers and performers do, making specific choices based on specific words. Now, I'm not going to break it up by verse lines or speeches, but by complete thoughts. These thoughts may occasionally end in the middle of lines of verse, and I know that isn't always cool with the Shakespeare police, but we're hunting for meaning. And it's vital that you be able to follow the thought process of these characters, since that's basically all there is in these plays. So I'll say a complete thought, I'll go over any of that what and how, and then we'll move on to the next thought. Now, before we tackle the play, a little background on this play, Julius Caesar. It's written about halfway through Shakespeare's career, where he's finished his great history cycle and most of his comedies. He's gotten through this great poetic stretch with Romeo and Juliet, Richard II, Midsummer Night's Dream, and the sonnets, all in about a year or two. Show off. And the big thing that happens at this point is that he gets a new home. Not to live in, but to perform his plays in. So his company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, has been performing in a theater called, wait for it, The Theater, in the east end of London. They own the building, but not the land. So when their lease is running out, in the middle of the night, right after Christmas, when no one's going to be around, they disassemble the theater and they store the materials. When spring finally comes and the ground thaws, they get the wood out of storage and they build a bigger and better theater across the river. This is the famous Globe Theater. And it's extremely likely that the first new show they perform in that theater is Julius Caesar. And what's awesome about this is that this is one of the very few occasions when we have an eyewitness account of one of Shakespeare's plays being performed in its original run. There's a young tourist from Switzerland named Thomas Platter who sees it on the wonderfully specific date of September 21st, 1599. We learn some very cool things from this account. 
we learned that the show started around two in the afternoon, that there were about 15 people in the cast, and then at the end of the play, four of them performed a dance. He recounts what he paid to get in, uh, what the actors are wearing. It's incredibly useful detail for us studying it now. It's also very likely performed right after or maybe even alongside Henry V, so it's a sort of two-headed analysis of the leadership question. And it's very likely performed right before Hamlet, since the two plays sort of share a similar language and even actually refer to each other at points. Now, the only original text we have of the play is from the first folio that's published after Shakespeare's death, none of those cheapo quartos that are published in his lifetime, which is helpful because it means there's only one set of words we have to figure out. And it has a very, very clear source, too. There's an English justice of the peace named Thomas North who publishes this incredibly influential translation in 1579, by way of a French translation, of a series of books by the Greek writer named Plutarch. Now, Plutarch isn't writing in the Golden Age of Athens. He's not that kind of Greek. He's writing in the first century AD, when Greece is part of the Roman Empire. And he had an incredibly cool day job. It was his job to interpret the messages of the famous oracle at Delphi. Yeah, he literally spoke for the gods. And his most famous work is what North ended up translating, this thing called Parallel Lives. He takes 23 famous Greeks and 23 famous Romans, and he pairs their biographies up to compare and contrast with each other. So, for example, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, two great conquerors, get paired up. And North's translation of Plutarch becomes a bestseller and eventually the source for most of Shakespeare's Roman plays. Shakespeare, by the way, borrows much more than just the plots. He lifts specific phrases and wordings wholesale just for his plays. These four Roman plays of Shakespeare are in many ways a kind of sneaky backdoor way for him to talk about another important city on the verge of empire, London. All these plays talk about big civic questions, about the uneasy relationship between leaders and their people, about how people can become a crowd and that crowd can become a mob, about the uses and abuses of power, about how minute personal concerns are writ large in these giant political forces. They also talk about civic myths. The words honor and noble show up a ton in these plays, in part because this is Shakespeare interrogating the kinds of stories powerful cities and nations tell to make themselves feel better about what they do, which is definitely another thing London and Rome share. And it's funny, the only sketch we have of a Shakespeare play from this time is of Titus Andronicus, a Roman play. And in that sketch, the costumes are an incredible mishmash. You have actors mostly in contemporary Elizabethan dress, but with togas over them. So it's possible that the mixed-up aesthetic of the costumes is reflecting something about how these Roman plays use their classical setting to say very contemporary British things. Now, obviously, the connection of Renaissance England to classical literature and history is real and lasting. After all, it's called the Renaissance, which means the rebirth, not just the naissance. What was being reborn was classical learning, and that material was the underpinning of every English education at the time. But London also feels a sort of strong personal connection to the figure of Julius Caesar. Caesar, surprisingly, had invaded Britain, sort of semi-successfully, and there was a persistent myth that he had actually built the original Tower of London, though he probably never even visited, and it really wasn't much of a city at the time he was there anyway. And he was a really popular subject for plays in Shakespeare's time. We know there's at least one play called Caesar's Revenge that's performed before Shakespeare even writes his version. So through North's Plutarch translation and other references, he's a massively famous and well-known figure, Julius Caesar. Here's my favorite fact. Shakespeare wrote somewhere in the neighborhood of 37 plays, give or take, and 17 of them, almost half, mentioned Julius Caesar by name. Bonkers! So we know about the original 1599 production, thanks to our friend Thomas Platter, it's remained a pretty popular play on stage and eventually on screen ever since, 
Probably the first great champion of the play is a Restoration-era actor in London named Thomas Betterton. And he takes on Brutus starting in the 1680s, and supposedly he brought a real sort of dignity and restraint to the part. This is definitely Brutus as a noble hero fighting against tyranny. Performances, though, seem to have fallen off a bit in the 18th century, mostly because the famous star actor of the time, David Garrick, didn't have much interest in playing Brutus. And this may have been in part because he was politically a dedicated Tory, a conservative. And so a play about someone rising up against authority would have made him very uncomfortable. But you know where it was popular in the 18th century? America. We actually know of a production in Philadelphia in 1770, which is ballsy as hell. You know, rising up against a tyrant is pretty theoretical until you're in Philadelphia in 1770. And it doesn't really come back to popularity in England until the 19th century, usually in very heavily cut texts, because the theater is starting to become obsessed with production values and spectacle, and everybody wants to show ancient Rome on stage in the most epic way possible. The greatest actors still kind of shy away from Brutus, but the great producers all want to do it. There's an actor-manager named Herbert Beerbohm Tree, who famously used live rabbits on stage in his Midsummer Night's Dream, and he stages Julius Caesar in 1898, and he really lays on the scenery and spectacle heavy. Before I leave the 19th century, though, I should probably mention the creepiest production of that century. It's a one-night-only event in November 1864 in New York City, featuring the great American actor Edwin Booth as Brutus. Central Park is just opening up at the time, and he wants to have a statue of Shakespeare put into the park. And by the way, it's still there. I recommend going to visit it. So he throws a splashy benefit performance, and the gimmick is that he's performing with his brothers playing Cassius and Antony. Cool, right? Now, in the middle of the performance, a Confederate terrorist attack sets the building next door on fire. And yet, that is somehow not the craziest thing about this performance. It's that four months later, Booth's kid brother, who played Antony, kills the president. And notice, what does he yell after he shoots the president? Sic semper tyrannis. Thus always to tyrants which is supposedly what Brutus said upon killing Caesar. John Wilkes Booth definitely saw himself as Brutus to Lincoln Caesar. Anyway, if the 19th century style was all about the emphasis on spectacle rather than text, once the 20th century rolls around, there's kind of a backlash against that style. Some famous productions went back to Shakespeare's original text and his bare-bones performance style, no sets. My personal heroes William Pohl and Harley Granville Barker started putting together productions with much less scenery, faster-moving text and action, and a focus on acting above all. But one of the most famous 20th century productions of Julius Caesar is actually an American one. It's performed by the Mercury Theater in New York in 1937, and it responds directly to the fascist movements that are sweeping through Europe at the time. The director is a 22-year-old kid you may have heard of named Orson Welles. The style, again, is really spare. It's just platforms and lighting, and everyone's in totally modern dress. He borrows those famous upward-facing lights of Hitler's Nuremberg rallies, and the scene changes are all done with these very quick light changes, not bringing in all new scenery. Wells, of course, in addition to directing, plays Brutus, and the craziest story about this is that at one point he accidentally stabs his Julius Caesar for real. Oddly, the most famous scene in this production is one that's usually cut from earlier productions. It's that weird scene of Sin of the Poet, but instead of the slightly goofy mistaken identity scene that you sometimes get, this one was chilling. It was fully about unbridled mob violence. Now, the one production that most people have seen is probably this 1953 Hollywood film directed by Joseph Mankiewicz. It's definitely in that 50s sword and sandal style with the epic Roman vistas. But you know what? It's actually pretty good. James Mason is a really compelling Brutus. John Gilgood is this kind of wonderfully snaky Cassius. 
And this very young Marlon Brando, although apparently coached by Gilgood, is surprisingly excellent playing Mark Antony. You may have seen this movie in high school when you were hating to read this play. Now I should warn you, there's also a 1970 movie with Gilgood playing Julius Caesar this time, and it is really very, very bad. Jason Robards plays Brutus, and it may be one of the worst performances ever given by a great actor in anything. Charlton Heston plays Antony, and he wildly overacts. Really, really not good. Stay away. And there have been fewer sort of high-profile productions lately. Denzel Washington played Brutus in the Broadway revival in 2005, which was pretty terrible. The Royal Shakespeare Company did a production that was set in a modern African nation a few years back, which is kind of an interesting setting for it. There's even an all-female British production that was performed in London and New York in 2012 and 2013. And yes, you probably first read it in high school. Why? Not because it's such an amazing play, although it's a very good play. You read it because it has the least sex of any play by Shakespeare, so it was safe to teach to 14-year-olds, and also because it used to be tied in with the old Latin curriculum that most schools had, so it was an easy way to fold that all together. Most schools don't teach Latin anymore, but we're still stuck reading Julius Caesar. Stick with me, though. I think it's a cool play. Before we dive into the text, I hope you're enjoying Clear Shakespeare. I'd really appreciate your support to make this podcast possible. Please go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks. And if that's too much, I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe on iTunes and leave nice reviews. No mean reviews, though. Leave those off. So we'll start with Act 1, Scene 1 of Julius Caesar. And for a big Shakespearean tragedy, it starts with a surprisingly goofy scene. You'll find this from time to time in Shakespeare's plays, that he doesn't just launch into the action, but he has a sort of warm-up scene, usually without the main characters, to get the audience into the right frame of mind to watch it. Sometimes that's about getting their ears used to the language. Sometimes it's about immersing you in the world. And it starts in some ways very similarly to his play Coriolanus, which is a later Roman play. And that is out in the streets with the people. You can tell from minute one of this play that this is a civic play. It's about the people and the city. So there's a big group of common laborers in the street on their way to something. And these two guys, Flavius and Marullus, who are notably not commoners, start yelling at them. Flavius says, hence, I love starting on one strong syllable like that, hence, go away from here. Home, you idle creatures, get you home. Idle usually means foolish, but it can also mean unoccupied, like what are you doing in the street? And notice after the strong H sound of hence, we also get home twice. So these are really strong sounds to start a play on. Home, get you home. And he throws in another H in the next line. Is this a holiday? Like, shouldn't you be at work instead of wandering around the streets? He goes on, what, know you not, being mechanical, you ought not walk upon a laboring day without the sign of your profession. Know you not, don't you know, being mechanical, remember the mechanicals from A Midsummer Night's Dream? It means a manual laborer, someone who works with their hands. You ought not walk upon a laboring day, laboring day, in other words, a work day, without the sign of your profession. These are like the outward symbols of what they do, their clothes or their tools. They should be carrying signs of their job on them not slacking off. And he turns to one of them and says, Speak, what trade art thou? A trade is a skilled job, so what do you do? And the guy turns to him and says, Why, sir, a carpenter? And Marulus, the other guy in charge, says to the carpenter, Where is thy leather apron and thy rule? A rule is just a ruler, what a carpenter would use to measure twice and cut once. So where are the signs of your profession? What dost thou with thy best apparel on? What are you doing with your best clothes on? Why are you so dressed up? And he turns to another guy and says, You, sir, what trade are you? So what's your job? 
And the guy mouths off to him. He says, truly, sir, in respect of a fine workman, I am but, as you would say, a cobbler. So truly, speaking honestly, sir, in respect of a fine workman, in respect of means something like compared to or in contrast with a fine workman, I am but, as you would say, a cobbler. I'm only, so to speak, a cobbler. Now, we know that as someone who repairs shoes, which is his real job, but there's a pun here. A cobbler is also someone who botches things, who screws them up. So compared to people who are good at their job, I'm just a screw-up. By the way, do you notice anything strange about the way these two groups are speaking? Flavius and Marullus, the higher-class characters, are speaking in verse, and the lower-class workmen are speaking in prose. And one of the reasons people speak in verse or prose is to give a sense of position, but introducing prose into a verse scene is also a way to sort of mess with the speaker. They're speaking all fancy, and you screw them up with this messy prose. So the two high-class guys are serious, and the lower-class guys are joking. This is a true scene of wit, that style of exchange where you take someone's words and mess with them. It's a cool strategy by Shakespeare, because it's not what you expect coming into a play about the great Julius Caesar. And it's not the funniest play overall, so it's nice to have a little funny at the beginning for the groundlings, the people who paid a penny to get in and are standing up and looking for fun in their plays. And Marullus repeats his question, but what trade art thou? Answer me directly. So you can see from his choppy language, he's starting to lose his patience. Answer me directly. Directly can either mean clearly or without evading the question, or it can just mean right away. So what trade are you? The cobbler answers, a trade, sir, that I hope I may use with a safe conscience, which is indeed, sir, a mender of bad souls. So why does he do his job with a good conscience? Because he's a mender of bad souls. There's a really stupid pun there, S-O-U-L-S. So he's a person who fixes people's souls. When in reality, as a cobbler, he fixes people's souls, S-O-L-E-S, the soles of their shoes. And Flavius comes back in, and he isn't having any of this. He repeats the question, what trade thou knave? A knave is like a rascal or a scoundrel. Thou naughty knave, what trade? Naughty isn't just like bad boy. In Shakespeare's time, it means nasty or wicked. This, by the way, is the fifth time these guys have asked, what trade are you? So clearly, this cobbler just likes to mess with them. And he keeps it going. He says, nay, I beseech you, sir, be not out with me. I beseech you, I beg you, be not out with me. Out can mean angry, so don't be angry with me. But there's another cobbler pun there. It can also mean having a toe sticking out of your shoe, which is why he goes on to say, yet if you be out, sir, I can mend you. And there's kind of a double pun going on there because mend can mean reform or calm you down. So if you're out in the sense of angry, I can calm you. But if you're out in the sense of toes sticking out of your shoes, I can fix your shoes. And Marullus clearly has no sense of humor. He immediately goes back at him with, what meanst thou by that? Mend me, thou saucy fellow. Saucy means like disrespectful or insolent or presumptuous. He definitely doesn't get the joke. So when he asks the cobbler, what do you mean by that? The cobbler comes right back with, why, sir, cobble you. And of course, cobble can mean to fix your shoes, but there's a few different puns this could mean. One is it could be cobble as in cobble stones. So cobbling can be throwing stones at someone. It might also be a pun on the word couple, which has a sexual meaning. So he is in high messing with them form. And Flavius finally almost gives up. He says, thou art a cobbler, art thou? Like you think you're a smart guy? And this lets the cobbler go off. He says, truly, sir, all that I live by is with the awl. So he's got a real stand-up act going here. An awl is a sharp tool that you use to make holes in leather. It's a cobbler's tool. But it's a pun back on the word awl. All that I live by is with the awl. There may also be some sexual pun on awl because it's a sharp, pointy thing you use to poke through things. But I will leave that up to you. He says, I meddle with no tradesman's matters, nor woman's matters, 
but withal I am indeed, sir, a surgeon to old shoes. When they are in great danger, I recover them. He says, I meddle with, meddle meaning to mess around or mix with, though there may also be some sexual sense to it again, with no tradesmen's matters. I don't get mixed up with other work people's business, nor women's matters, and those can be matters of the home or, again, yes, sexual puns, but withal, which means nevertheless, but you'll see there's also a pun back on with the all from earlier in that speech. I am indeed, sir, a surgeon to old shoes. A surgeon like a doctor, someone who fixes them. And old shoes, obviously literally old shoes, but they could also refer to worthless things or thrown out things or even people. So maybe he's calling Flavius and Marullus the old shoes. When they are in great danger, he says, I recover them. Recover in our sense of make better again or heal, like a doctor would, or cover them. In other words, fix the cover, like you would with a beat-up shoe. He says, as proper men as ever trod upon neat's leather have gone upon my handiwork. Proper here means handsome, and trod upon means stepped on or walked on neat's leather. A neat is a cow. It's a fancy way to say a cow's leather. So in other words, the best men who have ever worn shoes have gone upon my handiwork. In other words, walked upon what I make. And Flavius is really eager to get on with it, as at this point probably is the audience. He changes the subject. He says, but wherefore are not in thy shop today? Wherefore, why are you not in your shop, your workshop today? Why dost thou lead these men about the streets? About meaning around. You guys should be working, not on the street. And the cobbler comes back, truly to wear out their shoes, to get myself into more work. He's got another snappy response. And notice he starts with truly again, sir. It's a little sarcastic. Why are you leading all these guys out on the streets? He jokes, I'm trying to wear out their shoes. The more they walk, the more they'll need me to fix their shoes. But indeed, sir, we make holiday to see Caesar and to rejoice in his triumph. Oh, finally we get to the entire point of this scene. Who are these guys? Why are we here? Indeed, honestly, truly, we make holiday. In other words, we're celebrating, we're taking the day off to see Julius Caesar and to rejoice in his triumph. This isn't just his success. A triumph is a victory procession that famous Roman generals used to take through the streets of Rome when they got home. And Marullus doesn't want to hear that. And he launches into some verse. He says, wherefore rejoice? So he takes his cue. He picks up on that word in the cobbler's speech, rejoice. Wherefore rejoice? Why are you rejoicing? What conquest brings he home? Conquest here means the conquered land or people or treasure that he got from winning. And in this case, he didn't conquer some foreign guy. He beat Pompey, who's a fellow Roman and an old ally of his. He hasn't added anything to the empire. All he's done is beaten a Roman. What tributaries follow him to Rome to grace in captive bonds his chariot wheels? Tributaries are sort of the high-ranking captives from the other army who Rome holds for ransom. So they're brought back to Rome, and then wherever they're from pays to get them back. So there's none of those following him back to Rome to grace, in other words, to do honor to his chariot wheels, because part of this triumph procession is that the captives were tied to the wheels of their captor. In what? In captive bonds, ties, or chains. So there's none of these captives coming back with him. Why would you celebrate that? And notice the structure of the language. What conquest brings he home? What tributaries follow him to Rome? Wherefore rejoice? These questions. And Marullus has gotten really worked up in this. He turns on them. He says, you blocks, you stones, you worse than senseless things. Senseless means inanimate. In other words, it can't sense anything. So you're blocks, you're stones. You know what? Actually, you're worse than inanimate objects. He goes on, oh, you hard hearts, you cruel men of Rome. Knew you not Pompey? 
you can see how the language builds throughout this. That's five yous that he uses to accuse them. You blocks, you stones, you worse than senseless things, you hard hearts, you cruel men of Rome. It really builds up. You also have those hard H sounds coming back. You hard hearts. People totally without pity. Knew you not Pompey? Didn't you know Pompey? Pompey was this very powerful Roman general who had an uneasy alliance with Caesar and Crassus. This is what's referred to as the First Triumvirate, which finally broke apart around 50 BC, and Pompey was eventually assassinated in Egypt. And really what's being celebrated here is the final defeat of Pompey's entire faction. And he takes them to task for not remembering Pompey. He says, Many a time and oft have you climbed up to walls and battlements, to towers and windows, yea, to chimney tops, your infants in your arms, and there have sat the live-long day with patient expectation to see great Pompey pass the streets of Rome. That's quite a run-on sentence. That's six verse lines into one thought. So many a time and oft... And these are kind of synonyms, many times and also often. But putting them together kind of intensifies how often this happened. They climbed up to walls and battlements. Battlements are sort of parapets, like on castles. And not just walls and battlements, towers, windows, yea, to chimney tops. So it's a list of five different structures they have climbed. They even climbed up their chimneys, your infants in your arms, holding babies with them. So that's how dangerous it was. They just had to see Pompey. And there have sat the live-long day. And yes, this is probably where the song I've been working on the railroad gets that expression from. The live-long day. In other words, all day. It may be connected to the phrase lifelong. It may also come from the word leaf, which means deer. Like the deer long day. With patient expectation. Expectation as in anticipation. Just waiting and waiting all day. Why? To see great Pompey pass the streets of Rome. In other words, they did exactly this for Pompey's great triumphs. And he goes on painting this very clear picture. He says, And when you saw his chariot but appear, have you not made an universal shout that Tiber trembled underneath her banks to hear the replication of your sounds made in her concave shores? So when you just saw his chariot appear, not even him yet, didn't you make a universal shout? Universal meaning just all together. You all shouted at once. And such a shout that Tiber trembled. Tiber is the main river that runs through Rome. And you get that hard T alliteration of Tiber trembled underneath her banks. That's how deep it went. To hear the replication of your sounds. Replication here means echo, as in reply, of your sounds made in her concave shores. Concave shores means carved out banks, almost like a little cave. So it trembled from the echo of their sounds of cheering. So he asks them these three questions. Didn't you know Pompey? Didn't you climb up to see him? And didn't you give him these huge cheers? And then he turns it on them in this very rhetorical way. He says, And do you now put on your best attire? Attire being clothing. And do you now cull out a holiday? Cull out means to choose for yourself. You're just creating a holiday. And he goes on. And do you now strew flowers in his way that comes in triumph over Pompey's blood? Strew means to spread or throw. So you're spreading flowers in his way. His means the person's way, in other words, Caesar's way, and the way is something like a path or a road. So you're spreading flowers in front of him, in front of the person that comes in triumph over Pompey's blood. What's this triumph? What's this victorious processional for? It's for Pompey's death. Now, there's another way to read blood, which is blood relatives. This could refer to his defeat of Pompey's sons, which is probably more accurate because Pompey himself actually died in 48 BC. And his sons weren't defeated until 45 BC, which is actually closer to the events of this play. 
but you can really hear the rhetorical rhythm that Shakespeare sets up at the end of this long speech to bring it to a close. And do you now, and do you now, and do you now. He's amping it up on each one. And Marullus is so pissed that he ends this big crescendo with be gone. Those two simple syllables. And in fact, they're totally alone on a verse line together. There's a kind of silence built in after them. He goes on, run to your houses, fall upon your knees, pray to the gods to intermit the plague that needs must light on this ingratitude. But you see how this verse sounds very different from the other ones? That's because it's not true iambic pentameter. He's stressing the first syllable instead of the traditional second one. Run to your houses, pray to the gods. Not run to your houses, pray to the gods. Because you have these really strong verbs, run, fall, pray. It's a series of instructions. And what should they be praying for? To intermit the plague. Intermit means to hold off or stop the plague that needs must light. Needs must means must necessarily light. Light means to fall on. It's short for a light, like when a bird lands on something. So this plague is going to have to fall on this ingratitude. Your ungratefulness to Pompey, if you don't pray for forgiveness, the gods are going to plague you. And we've learned something very important about Marulas too, which is that he clearly had an emotional connection to Pompey, which also means he's not a big fan of Caesar. So this is really important setup for this play. Now, if you were a British school kid, you probably knew all about Caesar and Pompey because you had read it in class. But for us, it gives us a really important sense that this is a country coming off of a civil war. It's not just everything's fine in Rome, everybody. No, they've been through a war that split them in two. And Flavius piles on with another single-syllable imperative verb. Go, go, good countrymen, and for this fault, assemble all the poor men of your sort, draw them to Tiber banks, and weep your tears into the channel till the lowest stream do kiss the most exalted shores of all. And not only are those strong verbs, but you have those hard G sounds. Go, go, good. Almost like a go-go gadget. Good countrymen, in other words, fellow natives of this country. We'll see this word famously later in the play. So he's kind of being the good cop to Marullus's bad cop. And for this fault, to make up for this sin or offense, assemble all the poor men of your sort. Sort means your kind or your class. So get together everyone like you. I think this is a little snobby way to talk to them myself, but that's just me. Another imperative verb, draw them to Tiber banks. In other words, gather everybody, bring everybody together on the banks of the river Tiber. And another verb, weep your tears into the channel. The channel here isn't like the English channel, it just means the riverbed of Tiber. Till, until the lowest stream do kiss the most exalted shores of all. So even the lowest part of the river will kiss, in other words touch, but a much more poetic way to say that, the most exalted shores of all. So the lowest stream will be so inflated up with tears that it will touch the highest riverbanks. Some say this might even be hyperbole, which means the shores of heaven. That's how much he says they're going to need to cry to make up for what they've done. And the crowd sort of sheepishly exits. They got told. And this is the first, but by no means the last example of persuasive speech in this play. There's going to be a lot of big speeches to crowds later on. It's one of the things the play is really about. He just got a big crowd of people to go home when they didn't want to. So they all file out, and after they leave, Flavius says, See where their basest metal be not moved. Where is short for weather? But see where means something like, Look how? Their basest metal. Basis means lowest, most worthless metal, meaning their temperament or their substance, be not moved. So it's almost like he's saying, look how we convince these dummies easily. It's a little bit of a confusing construction, be not. It really means were. 
He goes on, they vanish tongue-tied in their guiltiness. We just talk a little bit to them, and they totally shut up, they felt guilty, and they disappeared. And then he starts making plans for the both of them. Go you down that way towards the capital. So you, Marulus, go over there to the capital. The capital here is the Capitoline Hill, which is one of the seven big hills of Rome. It's where the Temple of Jupiter was located, which is usually where a Roman triumphal procession would be going to. So you go that way. This way will I. In other words, I'll go this way. And he has interesting instructions for him. Disrobe the images if you do find them decked with ceremonies. So it's not beat up the crowd. Disrobe. In other words, take the cloth off of the images. Images are statues if you do find them decked with ceremonies. Decked is sort of short for decorated. And ceremonies are ornaments, especially if they are like crowns or royal robes. So these may be statues of famous Romans or statues of the gods, but they may also be statues of Caesar himself that people are putting crowns and royal robes on. And Flavius wants to make sure that doesn't happen. And this is an incredible moment because it's presaging so much of what's going to happen next. He's not just concerned about Caesar, he's concerned about the images, the symbolism, because Caesar is a master of symbols. And Marullus chickens out a little bit. He says, may we do so? Like, is it all right to do that? You know it is the Feast of Lupercal. Wait a minute. It is a holiday. Dicks. So at the beginning of this scene, when they came up to these common people and said, what do you think it is, a holiday? Yeah, it was a holiday. They were totally fine being in the streets. They're just trying to keep the common man down. And what holiday is it? Oh, it's a weird one, folks. This is Lupercal, also known as the Lupercalia which was a super strange Roman fertility festival that they held in mid-February. So a fertility festival in mid-February, does that sound familiar to you? Well, that's probably where Valentine's Day originally came from. A lot of our modern Judeo-Christian holidays come from old pagan holidays that were kind of papered over with new forms and names. And as we'll see in the next scene, there's some pretty weird traditions on Lupercal. So Marullus asks Flavius if it's okay to take these images down on a holiday, and Flavius says, it is no matter. I don't care, I'll do whatever I want. Let no images be hung with Caesar's trophies. So let no images, let no statues be hung, be decorated with Caesar's trophies. In other words, decorations to honor his victory. I'll about and drive away the vulgar from the streets. I'll about, I'll go around and drive away the vulgar from the streets. So we have vulgar in the modern sense of people who don't have any manners, and there may be some of that going on, but originally this meant the common people. So regardless of the holiday, he's going to go around the streets trying to get people off of them, guilting them again. And he says to Marullus, so do you too, where you perceive them thick. So you drive them away too, wherever you perceive them, wherever you observe them thick. In other words, gathered in large numbers. But it's a much more fun adjective than that. And he has a big poetic statement that closes this scene. He says, these growing feathers plucked from Caesar's wing will make him fly an ordinary pitch. Who else would soar above the view of men and keep us all in servile fearfulness? So these growing feathers plucked from Caesar's wing. He's comparing Caesar to a fledgling bird that's just starting to grow feathers. And in this case, the feathers are the people. So if we pull those little feathers out, he'll have to fly an ordinary pitch. In other words, a regular altitude. This is a term that comes from falconry. He'll have to be just like everybody else if we take this special stuff away from him. Who else, who otherwise, would soar above the view of men? So if we don't do something, he's going to fly up so high that humans won't be able to see him anymore. And what else is he going to do? He's going to keep us all in servile fearfulness. Servile meaning slavish. And this really sets the stakes of the play. You have someone saying, we have to control Caesar now because otherwise it's going to be too late 
and he's going to make us all into slaves. And actually, when you think of it, it's kind of an incredible turn this scene has taken. It started out with clowning and goofiness and wit and yelling at each other. And now suddenly the serious stakes of the play are completely in place. Now, we never see Flavius and Marullus again in this play, but they've really served to set things up. And as in many of Shakespeare's plays, the main characters don't enter in the first scene. Instead, they enter in the second scene, or sometimes even later. And this is Act 1, Scene 2, and literally every important character in the play enters now. Beginning with the title character, Julius Caesar, along with the person who is basically the main character of the play, Marcus Brutus, and my personal favorite character, Cassius. Their wives are all with them. Their friend Casca's with them. Basically, everybody's there. Some people even put Marullus and Flavius into this scene. Caesar's boy wonder Mark Antony is there. Everybody's there. It's almost like the play's starting again, but we've had that one scene to kind of warm up into it. And if you were a few minutes late to the play, congratulations, you didn't miss that much. Just some yelling at cobblers and bad shoe jokes. And what are they here to do? Well, apparently the triumphant procession is over because they're here to do something super weird. Caesar's first word is his wife's name. He says Calpurnia. And as soon as Caesar speaks, that's a big deal. So Casca, who's another important guy, turns to the crowd and says, Peace, ho! Peace means be silent, be quiet. And ho's a little interjection. It's sort of like, hey, over there. You all be quiet. Caesar speaks. And he repeats himself. He says, Calpurnia. So we can finally hear what he's saying. And his wife steps up. She says, Hear, my lord. What's his weird instruction to her? He says, Stand you directly in Antonius' way when he doth run his course. So directly here means exactly, or like unavoidably, in Antonius' way, in Antony's path, when he doth run his course. Course here is like a race. Sometimes you'll see a stage direction that says that Antony is for the course. That means he's dressed for a race. So apparently Antony's going to be racing. And then he turns to Antony. He says, Antonius. And Antony replies, Caesar, my lord. So he's quick to approach him too. Caesar says, Forget not in your speed, Antonius, to touch Calpurnia. For our elders say the baron, touch it in this holy chase, shake off their sterile curse. Whoa, that's a weird thing to be talking about. So forget not in your speed. When you're racing, don't forget to touch Calpurnia. And not just touch. Part of the Lupercalia is that there was a race, and the racers would all carry whips made of goat skin, and they would whip women as they ran past them. And why, he explains, for our elders say the baron, touch it in this holy chase, shake off their sterile curse. So the tradition is that barren women, women who can't have children, touch it in this holy chase, holy maybe in the sense of holiday, so we have this race on the Lupercalia, the barren women shake off, they get rid of their sterile curse. It's the curse of sterility, of infertility. And this is really, really interesting. Caesar is concerned at this very moment about his wife having a child. Number one, it indicates that he's thinking about his legacy, his heir. And number two, he's a childless leader which is something that England actually already has, Queen Elizabeth, famously the Virgin Queen. She used it as a strength. To Caesar, it's a little bit of a weakness. So Antony's going to make sure and whip his boss's wife in his running. He says, I shall remember. He goes on, when Caesar says, do this, it is performed. This is a company man right here. When Caesar says you should do this thing here, I'm going to do it. And Caesar sends him on his way. He says, set on and leave no ceremony out. Set on means get going and leave no ceremony out. Don't forget to do any of the important rituals of the holiday. We want to make sure this magic works. So that's a weird start to the scene, but then it somehow gets weirder because we hear a voice that says, Caesar, and who is it? It's a soothsayer. Now, those words literally mean truth teller, but what a soothsayer was is someone who predicts the future through signs or magic or the stars. 
And it's the first of something that happens a lot in this play, which is that someone sees the future. You have a lot of magical or spiritual or sort of quasi-magical ways of telling the future. And you have some characters who really believe those predictions and others who fight to have their own free will. But this is a huge tension in this play as it goes on. So he calls out Caesar. And Caesar hears him and says, huh, who calls? And Casca, who's sort of running this show, says, bid every noise be still. Bid means tell. So every noise should be still, should be silent. Peace, yet again. Peace means be quiet, again. Like, I say it again. Everyone be quiet. Because Caesar has heard a voice. He says, who is it in the press that calls on me? Not the press like he's the president taking questions from journalists. But the press means like a dense crowd. People who are pressed together. Who in the crowd is calling to me? I hear a tongue shriller than all the music cry Caesar. I hear a tongue, in other words, a voice, shriller than all the music, louder, more piercing than all the music that's playing. So apparently there's music playing. Cry out Caesar. And he says, speak. Caesar is turned to hear. And this is really interesting. He uses his own name in the third person. He doesn't say, I am turned to hear. He says, Caesar is turned to hear. This is another part of that image making, that image shaping, which is going to be so important, especially in the second half of this play. Caesar is obsessed with his image. And the name Caesar is going to become almost like a title rather than just a family name. So he moves everyone out of the way and he says, I'm listening. And the soothsayer comes up and he says, beware the Ides of March. It's a very simple line. In fact, it's a half line. The Ides of March means the midpoint of March. So March 15th, basically. And Caesar jumps on his line and completes it. He says, what man is that? So who's that guy? And we hear for the first time from Brutus, who's going to become, in many ways, the main character of this play. He says, a soothsayer bids you beware the Ides of March. He's delivering the message. So this fortune teller bids you, tells you, or asks you to beware the Ides of March. So he's just repeating. He may think it's ridiculous. But Caesar has an interesting response. He says, set him before me. Let me see his face. So set him before me. Place him right in front of me. I want to see his face. Notice how choppy Caesar's language is. It's a lot of half lines. What man is that? Set him before me. Let me see his face. And now we see another major character speak for the first time, Cassius. He says, fellow, come from the throng. The throng is the crowd, so come out of the crowd. And up comes the soothsayer, and Cassius says, look upon Caesar. And Caesar replies again, again in half lines. What sayst thou to me now? Speak once again. So now you're facing me. What do you say now? And the soothsayer is like, did I stutter? He says, beware the Ides of March, like a parrot or something. And Caesar listens, and he's a little weirded out by it, and he replies, he is a dreamer. Let us leave him. Pass. So he's a dreamer. Now, one of the ways that people got these sort of divine messages was through dreams, but he's also saying, he's just a guy who has dreams. Let us leave him. We're going to leave. Pass. In other words, let's move on, not like I'm passing on your script. It's kind of short and all about March. So again, speaking in that very choppy language, but he doesn't seem to pay much mind to it. And if it's unsettling to him, he doesn't really show it. And with that, the whole crowd leaves, except for two guys. Now, there's a lot of stagecraft in Shakespeare's time that really lets you picture how this would happen. So the play began with a whole mass of people piling onto the stage. And then partway through that scene, they all leave except two guys. And the two guys have a small conversation. And then the two guys leave. And just as they leave from the other entrance enters basically everyone who's important in the play, like the whole crowd comes back on. And then as they have a grand exit from the stage, two guys are left on stage to have a very important conversation. Shakespeare is really varying the texture and the rhythm of this. Big crowd, tiny little scene. Big crowd, tiny little scene. It gives you a sense of the epic nature of this play, but also how personal it is. And Brutus in particular hangs back. 
And maybe Cassius starts to walk after them, but Brutus doesn't leave. And so he turns back and says, will you go see the order of the course? The order of the course means like the ritual of running this race, the Lupercalia race. So don't you want to go see the race? And Brutus just has two syllables. He says, not I. And Cassius jumps on to finish his line. I pray you do. Pray here means I ask or I beg you. Come on, let's go, buddy. And Brutus responds sort of simply and witheringly. He says, I am not gamesome. Gamesome means like loving games or sports or just kind of playful in general. Like that kind of messing around doesn't interest me or I'm not in the mood. He says, I do lack some part of that quick spirit that is an Antony. Quick here not meaning fast, although that would help him in the race. Here it means lively. So I don't quite have as lively of a spirit that Antony has, the fun guy. But he says, let me not hinder Cassius your desires. Like I'm kind of a downer, I'm not fun. But don't let me hinder, don't let me hold you back, Cassius, from your desires. In other words, what you want to do. Go ahead of me. He says, I'll leave you. Brutus has to go think. He does a lot of that in this play, as you'll see. And Cassius knows Brutus maybe better than anyone. They're in-laws, they're close, and he knows this mood. And I think Cassius has been waiting to talk to him for a while, and this is his chance to put a plan into action. He says, Brutus, I do observe you now of late. So I observe you, I've perceived, or I've taken notice of you now of late, lately. So I've noticed this thing about you lately. I have not from your eyes that gentleness and show of love as I was wont to have. I have not, I haven't received from your eyes that gentleness, that kind of like nobility or courtesy even, and show of love, display of love, as I was wont to have. Want means like I was used to having. So you used to be really friendly and kind to me, and I feel like I don't have that anymore from you. I also like how circular that sentence is. I have not, and it ends with want to have. He concludes, you bear too stubborn and too strange a hand over your friend that loves you. Stubborn means like overbearing. And stranger isn't weird, it's more like distant or unfriendly like a stranger. So you bear a hand refers to a rider's hand on the reins of a horse, which sort of jerks it whichever way he wants to go. So instead of being nice to me, you have a stubborn and strange hand on me over your friend that loves you. You're being kind of a jerk to someone who really cares about you. And Brutus breaks in to interrupt his line. He says, Cassius, be not deceived. In other words, don't reach the wrong conclusions here. If I have veiled my look, I turn the trouble of my countenance merely upon myself. All this stuff about eyes and looking is going to be a really important set of images throughout the play. He says, if I have veiled my look, in other words, if I've concealed my friendship the way I look at you, which is a reference back to Cassius's line about I have not from your eyes that show of love. So if I'm looking at you in a less friendly way, it's just because I turn the trouble of my countenance. Countenance is like appearance. I turn my troubled look, my troubled appearance merely upon myself. And merely is not used in the same way we use it today which means like just or slightly. Here it means completely or totally. So if I've hidden the way I usually look at you, it's just because I'm looking completely at myself. This, by the way, is going to be a common theme with Brutus, looking at himself. He says, Vexed I am of late with passions of some difference, conceptions only proper to myself, which give some soil, perhaps, to my behaviors. This is a really intense admission. He says, I am vexed, which means like distressed or worried, of late, lately, by passions, passions meaning strong emotions, of some difference. Difference here means like a conflict or a dispute. Conceptions, like imagined ideas that are only proper to myself. Proper here means specific or particular. They just have to do with me. They're only mine, which gives some soil, which is like a stain or a blemish, perhaps to my behaviors. So because I have these personal things I'm thinking about, I'm not behaving as I used to. 
but he tries to turn it around in a good way. He says, But let not therefore my good friends be grieved, among which number, Cassius, be you one, nor construe any further my neglect than that poor Brutus, with himself at war, forgets the shows of love to other men. So let not therefore... So because of that, because I'm thinking of my own stuff, my good friends shouldn't be grieved. They shouldn't be sad. Notice all those hard G sounds. Good, grieved. Among which number, Cassius, be you one? I definitely count you as one of my good friends. So not only shouldn't you be grieved, but you shouldn't construe any further my neglect. Construe is a really important word in this play. It's going to come back a few times in very different ways. Construe means to interpret. So just because I look one way, don't interpret my neglect of you any further, any more than that poor Brutus, with himself at war, forgets the shows of love to other men. So he's at war with himself, he says. And this is really interesting because this is a play in which several actual wars take place between people. But right now, he's at war with himself. So he's thinking about himself, so he forgets the shows of love to other men. And this is specifically cued by Cassius's line in the previous speech. I have not from your eyes that gentleness and show of love. So he's referring right back to what Cassius said to him. I'm thinking so much of myself that I forget the shows of love to other people. It's an example of what you might call an antithesis, himself versus the other men. And Cassius starts to slowly put his plan into action. He says, Then, Brutus, I have much mistook your passion, by means whereof this breast of mine hath buried thoughts of great value, worthy cogitations. He says, I have much mistook. I like that double M sound, much mistook. And mistook means, again, misinterpreted. It's like that word misconstrue. I totally misinterpreted your passion, your strong emotions, your emotional state, by means whereof. In other words, because of this mistaking, this misunderstanding, this breast of mine, in other words, this heart of mine, hath buried, which is a sort of poetic way to say hidden or concealed. And what did it conceal? Thoughts of great value, worthy cogitations. Worthy cogitations basically is the same thing as thoughts of great value but it's a more poetic, fancy way to say it. So because I thought your emotions were something totally different, I hid some important thoughts from you. Oh, that might interest Brutus. And he turns it with this one odd poetic line. He says, Tell me, good Brutus, can you see your face? It's a very strange turn. It seems to come out of nowhere. Although remember, in just the previous speech, Brutus was talking about how he wasn't looking at other men because he was looking too much into himself. And Brutus responds in a sort of confused way. He says, no, Cassius, for the eye sees not itself, but by reflection, by some other things. You can't see your own face unless you look in a mirror. And Cassius replies, tis just. Just here, like correct or true. But notice what a short line that is. There's a sort of silence built into it. Just those two syllables and then nothing. And then he goes on. And it is very much lamented, Brutus, that you have no such mirrors as will turn your hidden worthiness into your eye, that you might see your shadow. It's a shame you don't have the kind of mirrors that will turn, in other words, that will reflect back your hidden worthiness into your eye, that you might see your shadow. Shadow here means reflection. So this isn't about seeing his face, this is about seeing his hidden worthiness, what's inside of him. Remember that phrase, worthy cogitations, from Cassius's last speech? Here it comes back as worthiness. He's really pumping him up. He wants a magical mirror that can show your inner value. This, by the way, is a very similar sentiment to something that we get in the scene between Hamlet and his mother. And this is a scene that Shakespeare's either just written or is currently writing or is about to write. So it's very much in his head. Hamlet says to his mother that he's going to be the mirror to show her inside her soul. And this is where Cassius starts to really seed the idea. He says, I have heard where many of the best respect in Rome, except immortal Caesar, speaking of Brutus and groaning underneath this age's yoke, have wished that noble Brutus had his eyes. 
So I've heard, a little bird told me, where many of the best respect in Rome, in other words, people with the best reputation in Rome, except, of course, for immortal Caesar. There's a little bit of sarcasm in there. Caesar isn't actually immortal, but he's just seeding in that doubt. So all the most important people in Rome, except for Caesar, speaking of Brutus, when they talked about Brutus, and also, by the way, groaning underneath this age's yoke. This is an image from farm working. A yoke is what you put on a beast of burden to plow your field. So all these important people are groaning under the burden, the servitude of this age, this time we live in, this era. So he says that everyone's really miserable about the servitude. And what do they wish? They wish that noble Brutus had his eyes. I think that's the third time in like eight lines that we've seen that word eyes. It is a dominant leading word in this play. So they wished either that Brutus had eyes to see himself or that they could lend Brutus their eyes so that he could see himself. They want Brutus to have those magical eyes that can see his inner worth. So Cassius has just laid the ground for the fact that everybody's miserable, everybody respects Brutus, and they wish he would see how valuable he is. He is laying it on pretty thick here. Notice, by the way, what he calls Brutus. This is maybe the most important adjective in the play. Noble Brutus. This is something that Brutus has called nine full times in the play. Noble Brutus. It's like his personal adjective. It's like how FDR had the word jaunty. Brutus has noble. And it's not just used next to Brutus. It's used 44 freaking times in the play. Again, this is one of the most important things for Romans to be thought to be. Noble. Honorable. That's almost more important than life. And Brutus is not stupid. He knows Cassius. He's a smart guy. And immediately he sees through all this pumping up. He says, Into what dangers would you lead me, Cassius, that you would have me seek into myself for that which is not in me? So would you here means do you want to? What dangers do you want to lead me into that you would have me seek into myself for that which is not in me? You're trying to get me to look into myself. You want me to look for something that isn't in me. But notice this isn't a full verse line. There's like three missing syllables at the end of that line. There's a silence built in. You've never thought about this, Brutus? Are you sure? Are you sure you didn't follow the procession because you don't like games? Or maybe it's because you don't like to see Caesar in charge. But this is part of his noble thing. Like, you can't be seen to have these thoughts. But Cassius, it's almost like it's a script for him. He barrels on. I'm sure he's been thinking about how he would give this speech for months now. He says, therefore, good Brutus, be prepared to hear. So therefore, to that end, maybe since you don't have your eyes, you have your ears, be prepared to hear. And he continues his metaphor. He says, and since you know you cannot see yourself so well as by reflection, I, your glass, will modestly discover to yourself that of yourself which you yet know not of. So basically, the best way to see yourself is by that reflection. You can't borrow someone's eyes, so you use a mirror. He says, I, your glass, in other words, Cassius himself is going to be his mirror, will modestly discover to yourself. Modestly here means without exaggerating. And discover means to reveal or show. I'm going to show you, as honestly as I can, that of yourself, that part of yourself, which you yet know not of. He says, that part isn't in me? Well, then I'm going to show you a part of yourself that you didn't know you had. And he goes on, and be not jealous on me, gentle Brutus. Jealous not in our modern sense of envious, but in an older sense, meaning suspicious of me. Gentle Brutus. Gentle is actually another synonym for noble, not just nice. He's pandering to him again. So don't be suspicious of me. Were I a common laughter or did use to stale with ordinary oaths my love to every new protester? If you know that I do fawn on men and hug them hard and after scandal them, or if you know that I profess myself in banqueting to all the rout, then hold me dangerous. So he's listing, and he's doing it in a very rhetorical way with repeated phrases. 
Were I a common laughter, if I was an object of public ridicule, or did use to stale, did use here means like was accustomed to or was known to, stale, which means to wear out, almost like bread goes stale, with ordinary oaths, almost like cliched promises, that you get that cool sound of ordinary oaths. So if you know that I stale my love to every new protester, a protester here isn't like someone with a big sign, it's someone who declares friendship. So if you know that I'm the kind of person who swears love to everybody who just comes around and asks me for it, or if you know that I do fawn on men, fawn means to show fake affection for or flatter. It's usually a term used about dogs. That way they kind of get up to your leg and act nice to you, so you'll give them a treat. So if you know me as a person who fawns on men and hugs them hard and after scandal them, so if after all those nice things I've done for them, I slander them, I scorn them. Or if you know that I profess myself in banqueting to all the rout, Professing is here sort of like protesting. So if I declare in banqueting, when we're drinking and eating, basically, to all the rout, to the crowd or the rabble that we're great friends, then hold me dangerous. Hold means consider. So it's a whole list of ifs. If you know that I'm the kind of person who just makes friends with anyone or flatters people, well, then you should consider me to be a dangerous person. And this is a direct cue from Brutus's line. He says, into what dangers would you lead me? Cassius says, well, I'm not dangerous. I'd be dangerous if I'm a flatterer, but you know me not to be a flatterer. I'm not that kind of guy. What I'm saying is actually important. And then they hear a big noise off stage. And how do we know they hear this? Well, we know it from Brutus's line. His first line is, what means this shouting? So evidently a huge shout has gone up from the people off stage. And he immediately tries to interpret it. He says, I do fear the people choose Caesar for their king. That's a really big jump in logic to make. And Cassius immediately seizes on it, because that's what he's been looking for all along. He takes that powerful word fear that Brutus just used, and he makes that a cue for his line. I, do you fear it? I, yes. Are you actually afraid they choose him as the king? Then must I think you would not have it so. So if you're really afraid of it, then I have to think you would not have it so. In other words, you do not want it to be so. And Brutus picks up on his cue, his would not cue. He says, I would not, Cassius, yet I love him well. I don't want him to be king, but I still like him. Get that idea out of your mind. And he gets to the point. He says, but wherefore do you hold me here so long? But wherefore, why do you hold me? Do you detain me here so long with your talking? Although, of course, Brutus was the one who originally stayed back. He says, what is it that you would impart to me? Impart means communicate or tell. What do you want to tell me? Get to the point. If it be aught toward the general good, set honor in one eye and death in the other, and I will look on both indifferently. This is a little bit of a complicated image, but notice he mentions eyes again. If it be ought, in other words, if it's anything toward the general good, related to or having to do with the general good, which means the good of the public, the common people, or even the country, then, so set honor in one eye, it's as though you could split your vision, and one of your eyes can see honor, and the other eye can only see death, and I will look on both indifferently. Indifferently here isn't like, oh, well, whatever, honor and death. No, it means impartially. So I'll look on them exactly the same. Why? He goes on to explain. For let the gods so speed me as I love the name of honor more than I fear death. Let the gods so speed me. This isn't a reference to his running speed. Speed here means succeed. So let the gods only let me succeed as much as I love the name of honor more than I fear death. This is setting up something really important about Brutus, which is that honor is hugely important to him, or at least the appearance of honor. He would rather die than lose honor, or so he claims. Notice, by the way, this is the first mention of the word honor in the play. Get used to it, though. It's going to show up 40 more times. That's how important it is. 
And why is he saying all this? Because he's afraid of what Cassius is going to say. So he gives him this disclaimer up front. He says, this can't be anything bad. This has to be about the public good only. Honor is so important that he can't do anything dishonorable. And that's what he suspects Cassius is leading him towards. But Cassius immediately reassures him. He says, I know that virtue to be in you, Brutus, as well as I do know your outward favor. He says, I know honor is important to you. I know that virtue. I know that quality of loving honor more than you're afraid of death is in you, Brutus. How well do I know it? As well as I do know your outward favor. Favor here means appearance, especially the appearance of the face. So his reputation of honor goes along with his appearance. That's how obvious it is. And notice the contrast, too, between in you and outward. So what's inside you is as obvious as what your face looks like outside. So he says, I know you're honorable, but he goes on, well, honor is the subject of my story. In fact, I'm going to talk about honor. And so he tells his story. I cannot tell what you and other men think of this life, but for my single self, I had as lief not be as live to be in awe of such a thing as I myself. So I don't know what everyone else thinks. But for my single self, as for my own particular self, as for me, I had as leaf, as leaf means just as soon, or like I had rather not be, as in not be alive, as I would live to be in awe, in awe as in serving or worshiping, such a thing as I myself, such a thing as the same kind of creature as I am myself. This is a little bit of a complicated syntax with those repetitions of self and be, but what he's saying is, He would rather not be alive than serve something that's exactly the same as he is. Another man, in other words. And that's where he really starts to show his cards to Brutus. He's afraid about Caesar becoming king too. He goes on, I was born free as Caesar, so were you. He's trying to prove that they're exactly the same kind of thing as Caesar. We were both born exactly as free as Caesar was. He goes on using that same construction. We both have fed as well, and we can both endure the winter's cold as well as he. Fed here just means eaten. So it's not like he's eating some magical food that we aren't. We all react exactly the same way to the cold. Caesar isn't some sort of super mega heat god. And in fact, he has a story to prove this. He says, For once, upon a raw and gusty day, the troubled Tiber chafing with her shores, Caesar said to me, Darest thou, Cassius, now leap in with me into this angry flood and swim to yonder point? There's that Tiber again. So once... Upon a raw and gusty day, raw going back to that idea of the winter's cold, so it's cold and windy, the troubled Tiber. Shakespeare loves to use that T alliteration with the Tiber again. Troubled here as in stormy or stirred up, not like it's having an emotional breakdown. So the stormy river Tiber is chafing with her shores. Chafing as in raging against, almost like it's fighting with its shores because it's so stirred up, presumably by the gusts. So it's cold, it's windy, and the river is all worked up. And Caesar says to him, Darest thou, Cassius? Cassius, do you dare to leap in with me into this angry flood? Flood here means river. Not that the river has flooded. It just literally means river. And swim to yonder point. Yonder is in over there, that point over there. Point here could mean place, but it could also mean like a promontory, like an outcropping on the other side of the river. So Cassius says that Caesar challenged him to a contest to see who could swim across the river. And he continues the story, Upon the word, accoutred as I was, I plunge it in and bade him follow. So indeed he did. So upon the word, just when he said the word, maybe the word swim to yonder point, accoutred as I was, dressed or attired exactly as I was. So he didn't like take off his clothes or anything. He went in with a full toga on. I plunge it in and bade him follow. I jumped into the river and bade him. In other words, I told him or I invited him to follow me. That's how impulsive and headstrong Cassius claims he is. So indeed he did. Caesar jumped in right after him. The torrent roared, and we did buffet it with lusty sinews, throwing it aside and stemming it with hearts of controversy. The torrent, in other words, the fast-moving stream, the river Tiber, 
It roared like an angry animal, and we did buffet it. Buffet literally means to beat with your fists. So they're talking about swimming, but it's like they're fighting another animal. They did buffet it with lusty sinews. Lusty not in the sexual sense we might have today, but it means like vigorous or robust. And sinews literally refers to the tendons that hold your muscle onto the bone. But in Shakespeare's time, it meant something more like your strength or the muscles themselves. So with all our might, we were swimming through this river, throwing it aside and stemming it. This is a wonderful image that they're literally throwing the water aside in their attempt to swim through it and stemming it. Stemming means cutting through or advancing through it, almost like you would through a field of wheat or corn. With what? With hearts of controversy. Controversy not like presidential candidates said something crazy, but controversy as in struggle or contention. It's a beautiful image that they have hearts of controversy, hearts of struggle. So they're really trying to get through this crazy river. Just picture it, though, this incredible white water and these two men trying to swim through it. But... Ere we could arrive, the point proposed, Caesar cried, help me, Cassius, or I sink. But ere, ere means before, we could arrive at the point that promontory proposed, in other words, proposed in Caesar's original dare, the one he pointed out earlier. So before we could get there, Caesar cried, help me, Cassius, or I sink. So he immediately wusses out and Cassius has to go help him. And now look at the image he uses. It's a mythological image. He says, I, as Aeneas, our great ancestor, did from the flames of Troy upon his shoulder the old Anchises bear, so from the waves of Tiber did I, the tired Caesar. So as Aeneas, like Aeneas, and who's Aeneas? He's this Trojan prince who escapes the burning of Troy in the Trojan War by the Greeks to found Rome. And in particular, he does that famously in a Roman poem called the Aeneid by Virgil. It's one of the founding myths of Rome. But it's also a really important text in Shakespeare's day. In fact, there's a pretty strong reference to that in the next play he's going to write in Hamlet, where that first player gets up and gives the long speech about Hecuba. Yeah, same story. So just like Aeneas, our great ancestor, ancestor because he founded Rome, did from the flames of Troy upon his shoulder the old Anchises bear. Anchises is Aeneas's father, so he carries him out of the flames of Troy. And notice, this is something Shakespeare does a lot. He changes the word order of a sentence to put the verb last. So he could have said, I, as Anchises, our great ancestors, did bear from the flames of Troy, the old Anchises upon his shoulder. But instead, he pushes bear all the way to the end of the line. So we're listening and listening and listening to see what he did with Anchises. So just like Aeneas carried his father on his back, so in the same way, from the waves of Tiber did I, the tired Caesar. And did I means I did bear. I did carry the tired out Caesar. This makes Cassius look pretty good. Did this really happen? I don't know, probably not. But it's a cool story. And by using that mythological reference, he really pumps it up. He also probably appeals to Brutus, who is very patriotic and has a real stake in Rome, as we'll see in a minute. So he tells this really over-the-top story about how he had to save Caesar's life in the swim. And then he brings down the hammer. And this man is now become a god. And Cassius is a wretched creature and must bend his body if Caesar carelessly but nod on him. So this man, this regular man who I had to save, is now become a god. You see that contrast of man and god? And now Cassius is a wretched creature. Wretched as in miserable or low, and not even a person. Neither man nor god. He's a creature, like an animal. And Cassius has to bend his body, in other words, bow, if Caesar carelessly but nod on him. The but here means just or only. So if Caesar just nods on him carelessly, you know, without thinking. Cassius has to bow to him. That's how important Caesar has become. But he knows, because he saved him in this river, that he's just a man. And he has more supporting stories. He says, 
He had a fever when he was in Spain, and when the fit was on him, I did mark how he did shake. So when Caesar was in Spain, presumably a few years earlier when he's been fighting some of Pompey's lieutenants in that same battle, he had a fever, you know, like a person. And when the fit was on him, fit like the chills you get when you're in a fever, I did mark how he did shake. Mark means notice or pay attention. I saw him shake when he had that fever. And he emphasizes that again. Tis true, this God did shake. I like that repetition. I did mark how he did shake. Tis true, this God did shake. In that second line, he isn't a he anymore. He's a God. You could put that in quotation marks. He's really ironic here. And he turns it up another notch. His coward lips did from their color fly. And that same eye whose bend doth all the world did lose his luster. That's a very strong adjective to use about him. His coward lips did from their color fly. And it's a little hard to get now, but this is a pretty elaborate pun. Because color can mean, you know, the color red that your lips would normally have, that they lose when you have a fever. Or color can also mean the flag that soldiers use in battle. So his lips were like cowardly deserters who fled their post. So the image he's creating is of a sick person's lips turning pale, but it's a military image. And it's not an accident he uses the word coward to refer to Caesar. He's really undercutting Caesar's greatest strength, which is his military prowess. And not only that, that same eye whose bend doth awe the world, that exact same eye, in other words, Caesar's eye, whose bend, which means his glance or his gaze, doth awe the world. Remember from before, awe means to cause fear or make a servant. So just one look from Caesar can make the world afraid. Well, that same look, that same eye did lose his luster. His here is more like its. So he's talking about the eye, not Caesar himself. So Caesar's eye lost its luster, its glow. So he's anatomizing Caesar's face in this image. First he talks about his coward lips, then he talks about his eye losing his luster, and then he goes on. I did hear him groan. So now his voice. I, and that tongue of his that bade the Romans mark him and write his speeches in their books. Alas, it cried, give me some drink to Tinius as a sick girl. So he's going on about the voice. I, yes, in fact, that tongue of his that bade the Romans, in other words, that told the Romans or asked the Romans to mark him. Mark means pay attention to what he says and to write down his speeches that he gives in their books. This is probably what they used to call commonplace books, where you would like write down your favorite sayings. So the same tongue that gives these amazing speeches and tells the Romans to write them down in their books, alas, it cried, oh no, give me some drink, Titinius. Titinius will meet later, he's another Roman. As a sick girl, just like a sick girl would say it. That is a deep burn, Cassius. So that amazing, world-shaking voice of Caesar's has been reduced to a little girl's voice. So by taking Caesar's face apart into its component parts, he talks about how reduced he is when he's sick. So he's a human, he can get sick. And he brings his speech to a close. You gods, it doth amaze me a man of such a feeble temper should so get the start of the majestic world and bear the palm alone. So he's appealing to the gods like, oh my god, it amazes me that a man of such a feeble temper Tempers like temperament or constitution or disposition. So such a feeble man should so get the start of the majestic world. Get the start means get an advantage over or gain the upper hand on. So this regular kind of pathetic dude has this huge advantage over the majestic world, the whole beautiful world. And he's amazed at what else? He'll bear the palm alone. The palm was in Rome a sign of victory. Alone. He's the only one who gets it. How has this human being and not a very impressive human being, become the foremost man in the world. This is a pretty impressive speech. It's another example of persuasive speech in this play. And notice that he's really going into physical details of Caesar. 
And this is hugely important because Caesar the man is not a very big deal. And Caesar himself knows this. But Caesar the idea is incredibly powerful and indeed will live on even after he dies. So in some ways, what Cassius is doing here is confusing Caesar the man, the guy who has body parts, with Caesar the idea, which is an immortal, impressive idea. But it's a very convincing thing, he says. And then we hear another sound off stage, And from Brutus, we immediately know what it is. He says, another general shout. General again here means by the people or by the general public. So another one of these big public shouts comes from offstage. And Brutus's line is built very similarly to the last time we heard this offstage shout. He said he was afraid that Caesar was chosen as king. Well, now he says, I do believe that these applauses are for some new honors that are heaped on Caesar. I love that verb heaped, as though they're piling honors on top of him in heaps. But clearly Cassius's words are starting to get to him because he's harping on Caesar again. And Cassius barrels right along. He picks up on that. He says, why, man, he doth bestride the narrow world like a colossus, and we petty men walk under his huge legs and peep about to find ourselves dishonorable graves. Remember in that last speech he said that he got the start of the majestic world? Well, now Cassius is going for the irony. It isn't majestic anymore, it's narrow. So narrow, in fact, that he can stand across it, as though Caesar's presence has shrunk the world. And this is a pretty cool image. He doth bestride. Bestride means stand over or straddle like a colossus. A colossus is a giant statue, and the most famous colossus in history is the version in the city of Rhodes, which is a hundred-foot-tall sun god that they put in the harbor. Another famous one you might know is still standing. It's called the Statue of Liberty, and that's actually one of the very few modern examples of an existing colossus. It's in the harbor, just where the Colossus of Rhodes would have been, and you know there's that poem on the base of it, and what is it called? The New Colossus. So you can almost imagine this image of Caesar as though he's the Statue of Liberty, that tall over the harbor. Except instead of the harbor, it's the whole world. And we petty men, petty means small or weak or inferior. It comes from the same word as petite. He's laying on the irony really hard. We're just petty little men. We have to walk under his huge legs and peep about. We have to kind of look around to do what? To find ourselves dishonorable graves. So just to find dishonorable graves, not even the honorable ones, we have to walk under his legs and kind of look around. Notice, by the way, that he's hitting that word honor again, but now it's dishonorable, as though putting up with Caesar makes us dishonorable, a thing that he knows Brutus can't stand to be thought of. Now, this is a very famous line, but again, the more you can make it about the actual language, the reference, the image, the less the famousness will matter. It's an incredibly powerful image. It's almost like a Gulliver's Travels kind of image with this huge person standing over all these pathetic little people. He's really pretty withering in this image too. He's trying to get to Brutus big time. And then he starts to turn the screws on him. He says, men at some time are masters of their fates. And here we are again, getting back into that question of fate versus free will. So at some point, men are masters, in other words, controllers, people who have a say in their fates. And why is this a big deal? Because it was usually believed at this time that men were controlled by destiny or gods or the stars you were born under. But he's saying, no, sometimes we actually get to control our own fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. Famous line alert, super famous line. But again, look at the words themselves, not the famous part. The fault, in other words, the blame, isn't in our stars. And this goes back to that idea of fates, because stars were believed to guide the lives of humans. This is more of that omen talk again. One thing I should note is that there's a lot of references in this play to philosophy, and in particular, this split in philosophy between what's called the Stoics and the Epicureans. 
Brutus is a Stoic, Cassius is an Epicurean. And part of what the Epicureans believed in is that omens and other sort of supernatural guidance was garbage, that people controlled their fate. So if we're underlings, underling is a particularly condescending way to say someone who serves a ruler. And if you go back to the image of the Colossus, they're literally underlings. They stand under him. So if we're underlings, it's not our star's fault. It's not our fate or our omen's fault. It's our own fault. He's saying we're the ones who decide whether we serve or not, not our fate. So our stars or our fates may set things up a certain way, but we still have to act. We can decide whether we want to be underlings or not. And then he goes back to the comparison, which is really helpful at the beginning of this speech. He's comparing Brutus and Caesar. He's saying that they're all just people, that there's no supernatural being here. And he does it by comparing their names. Brutus and Caesar. What should be in that Caesar? And he's not saying the guy. He's literally saying the word, the name Caesar. So the word Brutus and the word Caesar. What's so special about the word Caesar? Why should that name be sounded more than yours? Sounded literally means proclaimed or cried out. And this is really appealing to Brutus's ego in a lot of ways. Why should they say Caesar's name more than they say your name? In other words, why is he more famous than you are? Write them together. Yours is as fair a name. Fair here literally means good looking. So they both look like good names when you write them down next to each other. Sound them. It doth become the mouth as well. Become means befit or be appropriate to. So if you speak them aloud, sound them like we used a few lines before, they both sound just as good coming out of the mouth. Weigh them, it is as heavy. If you put them in a scale, they would both weigh the same, although you can't weigh words. Conjure with them, Brutus will start a spirit as soon as Caesar. The conjuring here he's talking about is summoning supernatural assistance, because sometimes when you speak a god's name out loud or a demon's name out loud, you conjure them up. Or at least that was the superstition at this time. So if you conjure with them, the name Brutus will start a spirit. Start here means raise up a spirit just as soon as the name Caesar will. So you notice a few things about this section here. Number one, it's that listing of verbs. Write those names, sound those names, weigh those names, conjure with those names. And notice also how many S sounds there are in a row right at the end here. Start a spirit as soon as Caesar. There's something kind of snaky about it, actually. But at the very least, you have to really spit those words out. It really builds to a crescendo. And he caps that off with, Now, in the names of all the gods at once, upon what meat doth this our Caesar feed that he has grown so great? He says in the names of, as though he's swearing by all the gods at once. But it's interesting he uses the word names, just after he's been comparing Brutus and Caesar's names. So by all those names, I swear, upon what meat... Meat can refer to food in general or to meat in specifically. What food is he eating that he has grown so great? Literally, that he's grown so large or important, of course. But it's hearkening back to that image of the Colossus again. What special kind of food is he eating that he's so important? He's not more important than we are. And notice, by the way, the texture of this language. Now, in the names of all the gods at once. That's right, monosyllables. And those single syllables sort of slow it down a little bit. When you have a lot of really dense multi-syllable words and then you go into single syllables, it really concentrates the language and simplifies it. And there's more of it in the lines after that. Upon has two syllables, but what meat doth this are? And then Caesar has two syllables again, but then feed that he is grown so great. And it continues for a while. It's really clear, simple language. And then he goes into a real lament. He says, age, thou art shamed. Age, in other words, our time or our era is shamed. Rome, thou hast lost the breed of noble bloods. 
So first he's talking to the time as a whole, and then he's talking to Rome, to the city. Thou hast lost the breed of noble bloods. Breed can mean the ability to breed, or just the lineage or inheritance of noble bloods. Not literal blood, but like families. Noble families, or just noble temperaments. So he's being pretty withering here. He says, if we've only produced one great man, our noble families must be dying out. And actually, in some ways, the noblest family in Rome is Brutus's family, one of the really old and most important families of Republican Rome. He goes on, When went there by an age since the great flood, but it was famed with more than with one man? So when went there by an age, there's that word age again, when did a time or an era go by, when did it pass, since the great flood? And notice this is an event that almost all cultures share in some way. We probably know about Noah's flood. There's that ancient myth of Utnapishtim, who also had a flood. And the Roman version was the flood of Deucalion, where one person had to get on a boat and repopulate the world after a great flood had wiped away all the evil people. But he's saying, when was there ever a time, since the great flood at least, but it was famed with more than with one man? Fame means like renowned for. And what does the great flood have to do with it? Well, there was only one man left alive. So he's saying kind of sarcastically, this must be the first time since the great flood when there was only one really important person left because we're all miserable nobodies. When could they say till now that talked of Rome that her wide walks encompassed but one man? When could they say, and let's rearrange the order a little bit, when could they that talked of Rome until now say? So when could the people that talked about Rome say until today that her wide walks encompassed but one man? Encompassed means contained, and but here means only, so just one man. So it's as though he's saying that the entire city is empty, and there's only one person here. It's just Caesar. He's that important, and we're all nothing. I want you to notice two things in the language. Number one, more monosyllables. When went there by an age since the great flood, but it was famed with more than with one man. When could they say till now that talked of Rome, that her wide walks, and that word encompassed, and then but one man. So it's really pared down language. See also the image of those wide walks. It's really emphasized by those W sounds in alliteration. Wide walks. You can almost picture the streets of Rome empty like in a zombie movie, except for Julius Caesar, head zombie. And then he throws in a bitter little joke at the end. Now is it Rome indeed and room enough when there is in it but one only man. And we sort of get this joke, but what we're missing here is the pun. And I'll tell you why. So he says, now is it Rome indeed and room enough? And it's entirely likely that in Shakespeare's time, the word room was actually pronounced more like Rome. So the pun would be on two words that sound the same. Rome and room would have sounded like Rome and Rome. So there's plenty of room in Rome when there is in it but one only man, like one single solitary man. And you can really get a sense of the refrain of this. We hear one man over and over again. More than with one man, encompassed but one man, in it but one only man. And he ends this long persuasive speech with almost a direct appeal to Brutus. He says, Oh, you and I have heard our fathers say there was a Brutus once that would have brooked the eternal devil to keep his state in Rome as easily as a king. He's going back to that idea of the noble bloods, like our ancestors, our fathers used to say there was a Brutus once. And what Brutus is he talking about? He's probably talking about Lucius Junius Brutus who was supposedly an ancestor very far back of this Brutus, Marcus Brutus. And he's the guy who threw the king out of Rome 400 years ago and founded the Roman Republic, which is a big city-state with no king, which at this time is a little unusual. So it's as though he's saying there used to be a real Brutus, an honorable Brutus, 
that would have brooked the eternal devil. Brooked means put up with or tolerated the eternal devil. Eternal here meaning either eternally ruling in hell or maybe eternally damned to hell. So he would have rather tolerated the devil keep his state in Rome. Keep his state means to keep his throne or his court or just to rule in Rome as easily as a king. Which means that the ancestor Brutus would sooner have put up with the devil ruling Rome than he would a king ruling Rome. So he's appealing directly to Brutus's pride in his ancestors. He's shaming him in some ways for not being as big of a man or as honorable as his ancestor. And he's really laying the stakes out, which is that Rome can't have a king. And it looks like it's about to have a king if they haven't already offered the position to Caesar from those shouts. And notice after this long, colorful piece of rhetoric that he ends on a short line as easily as a king. So there's a sort of silence built into the end of it as though Brutus is thinking it over. And when he speaks, he speaks very cagely. He says that you do love me. I am nothing jealous. So jealous here means something like doubtful or suspicious. So he's saying, I am not at all doubtful that you do love me. Notice he's going pretty far back into Cassius's speech where he used that word jealous. Cassius at the time was saying, if you suspect that I don't love you, and Brutus is in some ways answering it now. So he says, I don't doubt at all that you love me. But then he goes on. He says, what you would work me to, I have some aim. Work me to means something like persuade me to do or turn me towards. He says, I have some aim. Like I have an idea or a guess of what you want me to do. How I have thought of this and of these times, I shall recount hereafter. How I have thought of this, this in some ways might be the aim he's talking about. The mysterious direction that Cassius is trying to point him towards. So the way I've thought about this, and also of these times, these times we're living in, I shall recount hereafter. Recount means say or tell you, hereafter meaning in the future, some time to come. So he's still being super ambiguous, so he can't be pinned down. So I'll tell you later how I've thought about this matter and of the times we're living in. And notice the structure of his language. That you do love me what you would work me to, how I have thought of this, that that what how structure is very regular. And notice, by the way, that he also uses those very pared down monosyllables. What you would work me to, I have some aim, how I have thought of this and of these times. It's really spare. He goes on, for this present, I would not, so with love I might entreat you, be any further moved. So I'll talk to you later about it, but for this present, for this present moment, for right now, I would not, I do not want to, so with love I might entreat you, if I can use my friendship to you to entreat you, to beg you or request from you that you no further move me. Move means convince or urge. I don't want you to talk to me anymore about this. If my friend means anything to you, let's stop talking for now. He goes on, what you have said I will consider, what you have to say I will with patience hear, and find the time both meet to hear and answer such high things. So in some ways, it's a very similar structure to that, that you do love me, what you would work me to, how I have thought of this, what you have said, what you have to say. So what you already said, I'm going to think about it. What you have to say, what you're going to say in the future more, I'm going to hear it with patience, I promise you. And we'll find a time meet, which means appropriate or suitable to both hear and answer such high things, high meaning serious or important. So I'm going to hear what you have to say in the future, and I'm actually going to answer it next time. But he leaves him with a little tidbit. He says, Till then, my noble friend, chew upon this. Brutus had rather be a villager than to repute himself a son of Rome under these hard conditions as this time is like to lay upon us. So until then, chew on this. It's a beautiful image. It literally means to think over or sort of consider. But the image is literally like a cow chewing its cud. It's something to tide him over. 
So just think about this. And he calls him my noble friend, that incredibly important adjective to Brutus. And what does he want him to think about? That Brutus had rather be a villager. He would sooner be a peasant, in other words, than to repute himself, than to consider or hold himself a son of Rome under these hard conditions as this time is like to lay upon us. Like means likely or probable. So I'd rather be a nobody than consider myself a proud son of Rome under the conditions that we're likely to see if Caesar becomes king. So basically, it's a way to signal Cassius without giving anything away that he's on his side and he's not happy about Caesar's takeover. And Cassius sees that in some ways he's really won. He says, I am glad that my weak words have struck but thus much show of fire from Brutus. He's really playing humble. His weak words, good alliteration again, like wide walks. And what have his works done? They've struck fire from Brutus. The images of a flint. This is one of the ways you used to light a fire before matches. Struck here means sparked. So when you hit a flint with another rock, it sends out sparks. So his words is like that other rock. And he's glad that they've sparked thus much. In other words, just this much show of fire. Not literal fire, more like emotion or passion. I'm glad that I got just that much fire from Brutus, who's usually very taciturn. This is about as emotional as he ever gets. Remember, he's a stoic. And this wonderful scene ends, and we know exactly what these guys are thinking about. We know how powerful Cassius is at convincing Brutus, and we know that Brutus is interested. And then that same pattern continues, where we go from a really small scene to a very big scene. These two guys on stage, and then Caesar and the whole train follow him back on again. Brutus looks up and sees him, and he says, the games are done, and Caesar is returning. So they're really continuing their little scene as the crowd enters. And Cassius has a plan for him. He says, as they pass by, pluck Casca by the sleeve. And he will, after his sour fashion, tell you what hath preceded worthy note today. So as they pass by us, pluck Casca. In other words, just grab him by his sleeve. And he will, after his sour fashion. After here doesn't mean literally afterwards. It means something like according to. Because his fashion, his usual way of behavior, is kind of sour or wry or sarcastic. So in that usual way, he's going to tell you what hath preceded worthy note. Worthy of paying attention to. He's going to tell him what happened off stage, basically. Why the cheering happened. And Brutus agrees. He says, I will do so. But then there's a complication. He says, but look, you Cassius, the angry spot doth glow on Caesar's brow and all the rest look like a chidden train. So it's like when Caesar gets angry, a red spot appears on his brow, his forehead. Remember, Brutus knows Caesar very well. He knows when he's angry and he sees that he's angry right here. And all the rest, everyone who isn't Caesar, looks like a chidden train. Chidden means scolded. And train is like an entourage or a retinue. So everyone looks like they've been yelled at. Calpurnia's cheek is pale, and Cicero looks with such ferret and such fiery eyes as we have seen him in the capital being crossed in conference by some senators. So Calpurnia, Caesar's wife, her cheek is pale. So he's turned red, but she's turned pale. And Cicero, who's Cicero? He's a really famous Roman politician and orator. He's looking around with such ferret and fiery eyes. Ferret literally looks like a weasel's eyes. It means they're red and angry. And fiery also gives that sense of anger. We also really get a strong image from the way the language sounds, those strong F sounds of fiery and ferret. So it's exactly the same kind of angry eyes he uses in the capital when he's crossed in conference. Conference here isn't like they're going to show some slides. Conference means debate. And cross means contradicted or challenged. So when the senators are debating and one of them disagrees with him, that's the angry look they recognize in Cicero. And Cassius concludes, Casco will tell us what the matter is. So Caesar and the big crowd finally show up on stage. They must be walking very slowly. And there's a weird little exchange. Caesar says, Antonius. So he's calling for Antony. And Antony says, Caesar. And then he says this strange thing to Antony. He says, 
Let me have men about me that are fat, sleek-headed men, and such as sleep a nights. So make sure I have men about me. About here means around or surrounding me. What kind of men does he want around him? Fat men, sleek-headed men. Sleek-headed means well-groomed, as in men who care about what they look like. And such, in other words, such kind of men, as sleep a nights. Sleep a nights means that they sleep all night. They're not nervous or plotting. They're having a good night's sleep. And why does he want men like this around him? Yond Cassius has a lean and hungry look. Yond here means over there, like that guy Cassius over there. He's the opposite of that. He's lean and hungry looking. He thinks too much. Kind of a funny insult. Such men are dangerous. Notice, by the way, that Caesar's choppy language has come back again. He's speaking in half lines. It's all like these short little sayings, the kind that you could write down in your commonplace book, for example. And Antony, who actually, in some ways, is the kind of fat, sleek-headed, sleepy man that Caesar's talking about, says, Fear him not, Caesar. He's not dangerous. Don't be afraid of him. He picks up on Caesar's such men are dangerous, and he says he's not dangerous. He takes that cue. He is a noble Roman and well-given. Given here means disposed or inclined, like he's well-inclined towards you. He's very noble. Don't worry about him. And Caesar has kind of a funny reply. He says, Would he were fatter. Would here means, I wish he were fatter, or if only he were fatter. Then maybe I could put up with him. And then he picks up on Antony's cue. He says, fear him not, Caesar. Well, Caesar replies, but I fear him not. I'm not afraid of that guy. Yet, if my name were liable to fear, I do not know the man I should avoid so soon as that spare Cassius. He's not afraid of Cassius because Caesar's not afraid of anybody. He says, if my name were liable to fear. Notice he doesn't say myself, even though that's what he means. He says, my name which is another testament to how powerful the idea of names is. So if Caesar were liable to fear, if he were the kind of person who could be subject to fear, instead of this proud person who's not afraid of anything, I do not know the man I should avoid so soon as that spare Cassius. I don't know who I would avoid sooner than him. So if I was afraid, that's exactly the kind of person I would be afraid of. And I love this adjective spare to refer to Cassius. Again, it has that lean and hungry callback. It means thin. So he says, I'm not afraid of him, but then he lists all the reasons he is kind of afraid of him. He reads much, he is a great observer, and he looks quite through the deeds of men. So he doesn't sleep, he reads a lot. He's a great observer, he's always watching. And what does he do while he's watching? He looks quite through, he looks completely through the deeds of men, the actions of men. He wants to see what's behind the things that people do. This is great advice, by the way, to the actor playing Cassius. It's a cool description of him. He loves no plays, as thou dost, Antony. So he doesn't like entertainment. We know that Antony loves entertainment. He hears no music. Seldom he smiles, and smiles in such a sort as if he mocked himself and scorned his spirit that could be moved to smile at anything. So he almost never smiles, and when he does smile, he smiles in such a sort, in other words, in such a way, in such a manner, as if he mocked himself and scorned his spirit. Scorn means insulted or disdained his own spirit, that it could be moved, that it could be convinced to smile at anything. It's as though he's smiling at the fact that he's smiling. One thing I love about this line is that it's full of S sounds. It's almost like that speech of Cassius's earlier in the scene. It's all very snaky. Seldom he smiles and smiles in such a sort as if he mocked himself and scorned his spirit that it could be moved to smile at anything. Such men as he be never at heart's ease while they behold a greater than themselves, and therefore are they very dangerous. So such men as he, men like him, men like Cassius, are never at heart's ease. In other words, they're never relaxed or calm, whiles, as long as they behold a greater than themselves, someone who's more important or higher up than they are. So they're never calm if they're not the most important person in the room. And therefore, because of that, they are very dangerous. 
So again, he lists all the reasons to be afraid of Cassius, but then he has to conclude to keep his image up. I'd rather tell thee what is to be feared than what I fear. So it's as though he's telling Antony what other people should be afraid of because Caesar isn't afraid of anything. And why? For always I am Caesar. Again, he's turning his name into something more powerful. He is Caesar. And when is he Caesar? Always, maybe even after his death, as we'll see. Julius Caesar, the man, can be afraid, but Caesar, the idea, can never be afraid. And he says to Antony, Come on my right hand, for this ear is deaf, and tell me truly what thou thinkst of him. So come on, come over to my right hand. Not his literal hand, it means his right side. For this ear is deaf. Oh, so we've just learned that Caesar is deaf in his left ear? Again, it's that cool idea that he's a very fallible, physical, maybe even old human. But the idea of Caesar is incredibly powerful and inhuman and immortal. So come over to my right side and tell me truly what you think of him, what you think of Cassius. And with that, Caesar's whole train exits again, and we're left again in that same pattern with just a few guys on stage. Three guys in this case. And this is where we really meet Casca, who is one of my favorite characters in this play. We met him in sort of an official position earlier in the scene, but now we're going to meet the real guy. So he turns to Brutus and says, You pulled me by the cloak. You know, you grabbed my sleeve, just like Cassius told him to. Would you speak with me? Would you means, do you want to speak with me? And do you notice anything different about his language? Yeah, prose. I think this is a really cool division. So after you have all these grand people speaking all these grand thoughts in verse, you have this kind of blunt Casca, and he's talking in prose like a regular guy. So you grab me, you want to talk? And Brutus says, I, Casca, yes. Tell us what hath chanced today that Caesar looks so sad. Chanced means happened or occurred. So what happened that made Caesar look so sad? And sad not in our modern sense of upset. Sad here means serious or sullen. So what happened to make him look so serious? And Casca says, why, you were with him, were you not? Like, why are you asking me? Weren't you guys there? And Brutus is a little frustrated. He says, I should not then ask Casca what had chanced. Like, if I was with him, I wouldn't ask you what happened, dummy. So Casca tells the story. He says, why, there was a crown offered him. This is big news. A crown was offered to Caesar. Him here means to him. And he goes on, and being offered him, he put it by with the back of his hand, thus. And then the people fell a-shouting. Put it by means pushed it aside or rejected it, just with the back of his hand. Some guy offered him a crown, and he just sort of shoved it to the side, like, I don't need this. And because Casca says thus, you know that Casca, the actor playing him, demonstrates the gesture that Caesar used. And then the people fell a-shouting. They started shouting. That's what the shout was for. But Brutus follows up. He says, what was the second noise for? And Casca says, why, for that too. Same thing. But Cassius has another follow-up. They shouted thrice. They shouted three times. What was the last cry for? And Casca has to continue his refrain. Why? For that too. For the same thing. And Brutus is kind of flummoxed by this. He says, was the crown offered him thrice? Casca answers, I marry wast. And he put it by thrice, every time gentler than other. And at every putting by, mine honest neighbors shouted. So I marry, yes. Marry is short for I swear by Mary. It's a very English, very Christian oath. Because obviously at the time this play is set, there is no Jesus or Mary, but it makes him talk a little sort of lower. And you really get Casca as a kind of salt of the earth guy, even though he's a Roman noble. So yeah, I swear it was it. In other words, it was. And he put it by thrice. He pushed it to the side three times. Every time, each time, gentler than other. Gentler can mean more kindly or it can mean more nobly. So every time he did it, it was more nobly done than other. In other words, than the last time. And at every putting by, every time he rejected the crown, mine honest neighbors shouted. And this is heavily ironic. You really get a sense of how sardonic this guy Casca is from this line. Honest here doesn't mean like honest Abe. It means honorable or upright or moral. 
And neighbors just means like fellow citizens or countrymen. But calling them honest neighbors is very ironic because I don't think he really considers them either honorable or, to be honest, his countrymen. So he's really looking down on the lower people here. Just as with the first scene with Flavius and Marullus, you really get a sense that the upper classes look down on the lower classes in the Roman Republic. So Cassius is fascinated by this whole story. Why didn't he accept it? So he says, who offered him the crown? And Casca says, why, Antony. Which makes you think that maybe this is kind of staged. Caesar wants to look good, like someone who doesn't need to be king. So maybe he had Antony offer him the crown and planned to look all humble. So Brutus really wants to know more. He says, tell us the manner of it, gentle Casca. In other words, tell us the way it happened. Gentle here again means something like noble. But Casca isn't having it. He says, I can as well be hanged as tell the manner of it. I can as well mean something like I would just as soon be hanged as I would tell you how it happened. He clearly thinks it was garbage. He says, it was mere foolery. I did not mark it. Mere again here, not in our modern sense of just, but more like total or complete. And then foolery, which means nonsense or absurdity. It was total nonsense. I did not mark it. I didn't pay attention to it. But as we're about to see, he kind of really did pay attention to it. He says, I saw Mark Antony offer him a crown. It was not a crown, neither. It was one of these coronets. And, as I told you, he put it by once. But for all that, to my thinking, he would fain have had it. So I saw Mark Antony offer him a crown. Before we go on, notice that cool little wordplay. I did not mark it, and then I saw Mark Antony. So those two marks in different senses back to back. So I didn't mark it, but I saw Mark. I saw him offer a crown, but then he undercuts it. He says, yeah, it wasn't even a crown, though. It was one of these coronets almost like a small crown or even just like a wreath or a garland, not even a real king's crown. And as I told you, he put it by once. He sort of pushed it to the side or rejected it once. But for all that, like even so, to my thinking, to the way I think, he would fain have had it. Fain means gladly or willingly. So he played like he didn't want it. But if you ask me, he actually really did want it. Then he offered it to him again. Then he put it by again. But to my thinking, he was very loath to lay his fingers off it. So it got offered to Caesar again, and he put it by again. He rejected it again. And there's that phrase, to my thinking, for a second time. So as I see it, he was very loath to lay his fingers off it. Loath means like reluctant or unwilling to lay his fingers off it, to take his fingers off it or remove his fingers from it. You also get that cool double L alliteration of loath and lay. So he rejected it again, but it seemed like he didn't really want to let go of it. And then he offered it the third time. He put it the third time by, and still as he refused it, the rabblement hooted and clapped their chopped hands and threw up their sweaty nightcaps and uttered such a deal of stinking breath because Caesar refused the crown that it had almost choked Caesar, for he swooned and fell down at it. And you really get a sense of Casca getting carried away telling the story, even though he said, well, I didn't really pay attention. So you get this really long sentence. He offered it to him the third time, and he pushed it again, and still as he refused it, and still as here means every time or whenever he refused it, the rabblement, which is a great word for peasants, it means like a lower class crowd or a mob. They hooted, almost like owls. You get a sense of these animals. They clapped their chopped hands. I love the sound of clapped and chopped. Chopped here is something like our modern word chapped or rough. And they're chopped up from their hard labor. These are working men. So they clapped their rough chapped hands and they threw up their sweaty nightcaps. And these may not literally be nightcaps like you'd wear to bed. It might actually be a sort of snarky reference to the felt caps that the common people wore in Rome, which ironically were usually a symbol of their freedom and the Republic. But Casca describes them as sweaty nightcaps, like ridiculous hats. They threw them up into the air and they uttered such a deal of stinking breath. Uttered means breathed out. Such a deal, such a large amount of stinking breath. 
And breath could be literally bad smelling breath, or it can also mean words. So they yelled out so many gross words because Caesar refused the crown that it almost choked Caesar. So this is a reference back to actual stinky breath. So their breath stunk so much that Caesar almost choked, for he swooned and fell down at it. Swoon here means fainted. He probably didn't literally faint because of bad breath, but he did faint. And Casca goes on, And for mine own part, I durst not laugh for fear of opening my lips and receiving the bad air. Durst means dared. Like, I didn't dare laugh. Why? Because I was afraid if I opened my lips that I would receive, I would breathe in all that disgusting breath from the peasants. But Cassius has really zeroed in on the important part of this story. Cassius says, but soft, I pray you. Soft is something like, hold on, wait a second, not so fast. I pray you, I ask you. What, did Caesar swoon? Did he faint? This is really interesting to Cassius. He's looking for signs of weakness. Again, physical weakness is something he can show to Brutus and say he's just a regular guy. So forget about that other stuff. Tell us more about the fainting. Casca says, he fell down in the marketplace and foamed at the mouth and was speechless. Oh, this is really interesting. And this is probably why Caesar looked so angry when he showed up, because he fainted in public. And not only did he faint, he fell down in the marketplace in front of everybody, and he foamed at the mouth. And he was speechless. He didn't say anything. And Brutus says, "'Tis very like." Like here means likely. So it's entirely probable. Why? He hath the falling sickness. The falling sickness is another word for epilepsy. And this really tells you how intimate Brutus is with Caesar. He knows his illnesses. So yeah, that makes total sense. He has epilepsy. But while Brutus has a very literal read on this, yeah, he does have epilepsy, Cassius has a much more metaphorical read, which really hooks in nicely to what he was telling Brutus before. He says, no, Caesar hath it not, but you and I and on his casca, we have the falling sickness. And this is something in some ways that only Brutus will get. Falling as in falling down or being subjugated or servile. We're the ones who have fallen down in front of Caesar. And Casca, who hasn't been let in on the plan, says, I know not what you mean by that, but I'm sure Caesar fell down. I gotta get all these metaphors. I saw Caesar fall. I don't know about the falling sickness we allegedly have. And he continues his story. If the tagrag people did not clap him and hiss him according as he pleased and displeased them, as they used to do the players in the theater, I am no true man. So if the tag rag people, we're used to the term ragtag, it's the same idea. Literally, it's ragged or shabby people, peasants, the riffraff. So if these gross peasants did not clap him and hiss him, according as, depending on whether he pleased and displeased them. So depending on whether they liked what he did or not, they would clap for him or hiss for him, just as they used to do the players in the theater, just like they're accustomed to doing to actors in a theater. This is a super meta moment here in this play. In some ways, it's a way to kind of advertise the new Globe Theater, you could argue. We've got this brand new theater. We might as well refer to it. It lets Casca turn to the audience a little bit and be like, aren't we all just like Julius Caesar in the crowd? So if what I'm saying isn't true, I am no true man. True here means honest. And Brutus follows up. He says, what said he when he came unto himself? Came unto himself almost like came to when he was himself again, when his fit had passed. Casca says, marry, before he fell down... When he perceived the common herd was glad he refused the crown, he plucked me ope his doublet and offered them his throat to cut. So he doesn't say what happened when Caesar recovered. He says, Mary, in other words, again, I swear by Mary, before he fell down, before the fit, when he perceived the common herd was glad he refused the crown. That's a really withering way to refer to them. The common people like a herd of animals. So when he noticed that they were glad that he refused the crown, he plucked me ope, not literally plucked me, it's a way to say he opened up his doublet, which is a kind of short, tight jacket that men used to wear. Of course, this is a jacket that men used to wear during the Renaissance, so it's a real anachronism. 
So he opened up his jacket and he offered the people his throat to cut. It's a really big over-the-top theatrical gesture. Anyone who wants to can come kill me. I'm fine. I'm totally humble. But Casca is really not having it. He says, And I had been a man of any occupation. If I would not have taken him at a word, I would I might go to hell among the rogues. And here means if. So if I had been a man of any occupation. Literally, that's a working man. But there might be a play on a person who actually does things. So if I had been in that crowd, if I would not have taken him at a word. And this can really mean two different things. At a word can either mean at his word, or it can mean immediately, at once. So if I hadn't actually cut his throat, I would I might go to hell among the rogues. I wish or I hope that I might go to hell among the rogues. Rogues are just like bad people or beggars. So basically he's saying, if I had been one of these people and Caesar offered me his neck to cut, I would have cut it. I would rather have gone to hell. And finally he gets to the thing they originally asked about. And so he fell. When he came to himself again... He said if he had done or said anything amiss, he desired their worships to think it was his infirmity. So Brutus asked what he said when he came unto himself, and Casca answers when he came to himself again, he said if he had done or said anything amiss, amiss meaning unseemly or improper, he desired their worships. This is more irony from Casca. Your worship is something you would call a high-born lord, not peasants. So it's like he's really sucking up to these people who don't deserve it. He desired them to think it was his infirmity. Infirmity meaning his illness or his disease. So if he said anything bad, it's just because he was sick. Casca's really not having it. He goes on. Three or four wenches where I stood cried, Alas, good soul, and forgave him with all their hearts. So three or four wenches. Literally girls. But it's usually used to refer to like low-born peasant girls. So three of these worthless girls where I stood cried, Alas, good soul. So clearly his act was working on them. And forgave him with all their hearts. Forgave him for what? I mean, being sick? Anything he said wrong? But Casca adds his own comment. But there's no heed to be taken of them. Heed means notice or attention or even just listening, as in don't pay any attention to them. If Caesar had stabbed their mothers, they would have done no less. So they would have forgiven him if he had actively killed their mothers. And Brutus asks, and after that he came thus sad away? So after that happened, that's why he came in this serious way that we saw him? And Casca answers, aye, yes. And Cassius has an interesting follow-up, because he noticed Cicero. He says, did Cicero say anything? Remember, Cicero is an incredibly important politician at this point. Casca has a weird reply. He says, aye, he spoke Greek. Strange. Cassius is confused. He says, to what effect? As in, to what purpose? To what end? Why did he do that? Casca has no idea. He says, nay, and I tell you that, I'll never look you in the face again. And means if. Like, if I can tell you that, I'm being totally dishonest to you. I couldn't bear to look you in the face. But those that understood him smiled at one another and shook their heads. So the people who actually understood Greek smiled at each other and shook their heads. Maybe something like nodded their heads? Clearly this is an inside joke. But he goes on. But for mine own part, it was Greek to me. Famous line alert. This has basically always had the same meaning it has for us today. It was Greek to me means it was totally incomprehensible. I had no idea what they were talking about. This is often noted as something that Shakespeare made up. I think it was probably already an expression when Shakespeare wrote it down. But in this case, it was literally Greek to him. So it's a pun only in the context of knowing this expression. And he goes on and he has some really interesting news for us, the audience. He says, I could tell you more news too. Marullus and Flavius, for pulling scarves off Caesar's images, are put to silence. So I have some more news for you. Marullus and Flavius, remember those two tribunes from early in the play? For pulling scarves off Caesar's images. Remember the ceremonies they were talking about that they were going to pull off of Caesar's images, his statues? Well, apparently they did it, and they were caught. And what's their punishment? They're put to silence. 
And it's an incredible image put to silence. Now, this can mean two things. One, it can mean that they were stripped of their job of being tribunes and they were exiled from Rome. The other thing it could mean is they're literally put to silence. They were executed. If so, they were executed really fast. But it's sort of an ironic term because the job of these guys, the tribunes, is to literally speak for the plebeians on their behalf to the upper classes. A job, I should note, they seem to be doing really badly in that first scene. So even as Caesar is acting really humble and offering his throat and refusing crowns, we have a little bit of police state starting already. So clearly the stakes are a little higher than we thought. He says, fare you well. In other words, goodbye. There was more foolery yet, if I could remember it. In other words, there was more clowning or foolish behavior, but I don't really remember it at this point. So he's on his way and Cassius asks, will you sup with me tonight, Casca? In other words, will you eat supper with me? And this would be a really normal question, except we know what Cassius is thinking from what he said to Brutus. At least we have some idea. It seems like maybe he wants to let Casca in on it too. But Casca says, no, I'm promised forth. In other words, I have an engagement somewhere else. But Cassius won't take no for an answer. He says, well, will you dine with me tomorrow? So instead of eating supper, will you dine? Will you eat dinner with me tomorrow? Dinner here probably means something like lunch. He needs to talk to him as soon as he's available in person. So if he can't do supper tonight, can you do dinner tomorrow? And Casca says, aye, if I be alive and your mind hold and your dinner worth the eating. Yeah, if I'm still alive tomorrow. And if your mind hold, in other words, if your opinion doesn't change. And by the way, if your dinner is worth the eating. Sardonic to the end. So Cassius is glad. He says, good, I will expect you. Casca says, do so. Farewell both. Yep, expect me then. I'll see you later. And so they're left behind together for a little wrap-up. Brutus turns to Cassius and says, What a blunt fellow is this grown to be. Blunt as in rough or harsh. He has that very forthright way of talking, like he doesn't care about anything. He says, He was quick metal when he went to school. Quick metal literally means like he had a lively spirit. But there also might be a little bit of a pun on metal as an M-E-T-A-L. So he's blunt now, but he used to be really sharp when we were younger. But Cassius disagrees. He says, so is he now in execution of any bold or noble enterprise. However, he puts on this tardy form. So he used to have quick metal when he was younger. But Cassius says, actually, so he's exactly the same way now, but only in execution, in carrying out any bold or noble enterprise. However, no matter how much he puts on this tardy form, this sort of reluctant behavior or reluctant appearance. So it's like he's wearing a suit of I don't care or back off. But it's just a suit. Underneath, he's still just as sharp as he ever was if there's an important noble enterprise going on. This rudeness is a sauce to his good wit, which gives men stomach to digest his words with better appetite. So this rudeness, this rough or blunt talk, is like a sauce. Literally like a sauce you'd eat on a piece of meat to his good wit. Wit here isn't like witty jokey. It's more like his intelligence or sharpness. And just like a sauce helps you to eat a piece of meat, his rough talk gives men stomach to digest his words with better appetite. Stomach is literally a desire to consume his words and digest them. So his blunt talk sort of helps the medicine go down. Did you notice anything about the language, by the way? We're back in verse again. Casca really dragged us into prose, but once these two guys are left alone together, then we get back to the serious verse. And Brutus agrees. And so it is. For this time, I will leave you. So they're going to split up for now. Tomorrow, if you please to speak with me, I will come home to you. So if you please to speak with me, in other words, if you would like to speak with me, I will come over to you, to your house. Or if you will, come home to me and I will wait for you. If you will, if you wish, if you'd rather, come to my house and I'll wait for you there. And I think Cassius likes that second one better. He says, I will do so. I'll go to your house. Till then, think of the world. It's a really kind of ambiguous send-off. Think of the world. 
which he knows is just tuned perfectly to get Brutus thinking about the situation. Think about what's going on in the world. Think about how much the world needs you, maybe. It's just ambiguous that he knows it's perfect to set Brutus off thinking, because Brutus is a thinker, he's a brooder. And with that, Brutus exits. And we have a little bit of a monologue for Cassius. Well, Brutus, thou art noble. And it's a really subversive way to use this incredibly important word noble. You sure are noble. But there's a downside to that too, which is that your nobility can be taken advantage of. He goes on, Yet I see thy honorable metal may be wrought from that it is disposed. So your honorable metal, your honorable temperament or spirit, may be wrought. That's literally the past tense of work, but here it means something like bent. Because it isn't just metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, it's also metal, M-E-T-A-L. You know that idea of wrought iron? It's iron that's been twisted into a shape? Well, in the same way, Brutus's character can be shaped by Cassius from that it is disposed, away from the way it's naturally inclined to be. So it's as though he can take advantage of his honor and nobility and his ideas of his own honor and nobility to do whatever he wants just by appealing to it. There's just a little bit of mustache twirling going on from Cassius here. It's a slightly kind of Iago Richard III-like speech. Not quite as evil as that, but he's kind of amazed at what he can get away with with Brutus. He says, Therefore it is meet that noble minds keep ever with their likes. For who's so firm that cannot be seduced? So it's meet, it's appropriate or proper that noble minds keep ever, keep always with their likes, with people as noble as they are. In some ways, Cassius is almost saying, I'm not very noble. Noble people should only hang around with other noble people. Why? For who's so firm that cannot be seduced? For who in the whole world is so firm, so grounded in their beliefs that they can't be seduced to do something else? Like if Brutus can be convinced of this, anyone can be. Almost like he's saying he shouldn't trust me. Caesar doth bear me hard, but he loves Brutus. Bear me hard means resents me. He knows exactly what Caesar's saying about him. He knows that Caesar doesn't trust him, but he also knows that Caesar loves and trusts Brutus implicitly. And he's going to use Brutus against Caesar. <laughs> if I were Brutus now and he were Cassius, he should not humor me. So basically he's saying if we switched places and I was him, he wouldn't humor me. In other words, he wouldn't indulge me or comply with me. Basically, if I were Brutus, I wouldn't let him influence me this way. I wouldn't trust me. And then he goes on to his plan. I will this night in several hands, in at his windows throw, as if they came from several citizens, writings, all tending to the great opinion the Rome holds of his name, wherein obscurely Caesar's ambition shall be glanced at. And after this, let Caesar seat him sure, for we will shake him, or worse days endure. So here's his plan. I will this night, this very night, in several hands, basically in different handwritings. And why in different handwritings? as if they came from several citizens. Notice that double use of several. Different handwriting, as if it came from different people. One thing that might help you in reading this sentence is to put a parenthesis around as if they came from several citizens. And notice Shakespeare doing that thing with word order again, where he pushes the verb to the end of the line. Not throw in at his windows, in at his windows throw, what? Writings. All tending to the great opinion that Rome holds of his name. Tending here means alluding to or speaking to, the great opinion that Rome holds of his name. Name here is something like reputation, but maybe also his literal name. Since remember, his ancestors supposedly founded the Roman Republic. All these writings, allegedly from different people, are going to talk about how much they respect the name of Brutus, how much they love his reputation, how much his family means to them, appealing to that same almost vanity that Cassius has been appealing to all along. And what else is in these writings? Wherein obscurely Caesar's ambition shall be glanced at. So in these writings, obscurely, in other words, ambiguously, 
Caesar's ambition, his ambition to be king, shall be glanced at. Glanced at means something like mentioned in passing. We're just going to slip that in there. Mostly it's going to be about how great Brutus is, but part of it's also going to be about how Caesar's getting big for his britches. And then he ends with a couplet. And after this, let Caesar seat him sure. So he's saying Caesar should situate himself as securely as possible in power, if he knows what's good for him. Why? For we will shake him, or worse days endure. So if we can't rattle him, things are going to get really bad, because Caesar's going to take over. And notice how the scene ends with a rhyming couplet, sure endure. This is a classic way that Shakespeare ends his scenes. It lets you know the scene's over, it kind of puts a button on it, and it rocks you into the next scene. Okay, that's the end of part one of Julius Caesar. Come back next time when Cassius's plot starts to go into effect. I hope you're enjoying Clear Shakespeare. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like it, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a good review. And if you really like it, you can help to make Clear Shakespeare possible. Go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks. I really appreciate it. Bye.